Support for Boston Public Radio comes from New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. And Safety Insurance, offering a variety of home insurance products to cover your home's increased value. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. I'm Jim Browdy, ahead on Boston Public Radio. We're opening phone and text lines to talk with you about nothing, specifically doing nothing on our precious days off. Are you the kind who treasure those days you can simply exist without reason? Or do you find yourself incapable of putting chores, work, side hustles to the side for the sake of your sanity? I'm Marjorie Egan. Then we'll talk with Michael Curry from the Mass League of Community Health Centers and the NAACP about one thing, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's defeat in Chicago and whether black mayors are unfairly targeted when big city crime spikes. All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. This is 89.7, Boston's local NPR. Hey, it's Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Yeakin. Welcome to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Happy Monday to you, Jim. <laughs> Happy Monday to you, too, Marjorie. By the way, we're at the library tomorrow, and yep. one of our guests is going to be Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox, our first visit with a new commissioner. I know we're both really looking forward to that. And we have a special Tuesday live music thing, not just Friday this I week, know, but Tuesday I'm as thrilled. Well. Should be a great day. We hope you join us. So we've all been there. It's Sunday afternoon. You're settling in to watch your favorite Scandi Noir, and the panic <laughs> sets in. Is there something else I should be doing? Maybe prepping for the next day's work, this very show, maybe? But in a recent piece in The Atlantic, they argue, no, Jim, there's absolutely nothing else she should be doing on Sunday other than doing nothing. Sundays are do-nothing days. Do you have do-nothing days? Do they recharge you or leave you more anxious than ever, knowing you have nothing, got nothing done, and the to-do list is growing? Would you like to have a do-nothing day but just can't pull it off, whether it's guilt or something else? Sort of like a non-religious Sabbath. You don't read texts. You don't work out. And when the so-called Sunday scary set in, as Jason Heller writes in The Atlantic, fight to stay still. The number is 877-301-8970 for texting or calling purposes. Do you ever have a do-nothing Sunday? No, I never have a do-nothing Sunday. But, you know, I I think a couple of caveats here. Uh, Well, you have to have no children, basically, or they have to be out of the house to do this. I don't think you're going to be allowed to have a do-nothing Sunday if you've got, like, five- and six-year-olds running around the house. And also, I mean, if you've got to work on on Monday, which a lot of us do, I mean, we really, we do. We have to Read How much stuff. prep did you do yesterday for today? Mountains. I was up for hours. <laughs> I was up until two in the morning. I mean, you're, when you get in bed, you read a couple of uh, well, you, piles but you do have prep. to feel. You got to read the newspapers. You got to read online. You got to do that. But I'm not complaining. I I'm not complaining about my job. But I I think the idea, the concept of it, 
is a great concept. This guy that wrote in The Atlantic, this Jason Heller is talking about just basically spending the whole day in bed with his wife watching TV and maybe doing an occasional uh, reading. You know, our, our buddy Arthur C. Brooks, who comes with us uh, once a month and talks about his happiness columns, which are great. In the in same the Atlantic. Atlantic, by the way, yeah. He says you shouldn't watch TV. You should just try to be quiet and, and mellow and, and relax. But the idea of just relaxing all day long I mean, it certainly is appealing. Is it appealing to you? It's it's incredibly appealing. However, I mean, you left out the part about Arthur Brooks's piece. We discussed this with him a few months ago, right last year. He said there was some experiment. I can't remember all the details, but there was some experiment where people, subjects, were asked to do nothing. They're and left they got alone so antsy. in a room for 6 to right. 15 minutes with right. nothing to do. Right, a short period do. of time. And because right. they couldn't handle doing nothing, when one of the alternatives, <laughs> this is totally true, was to apply an electric shock to themselves so they'd at least be doing something, they chose that. They chose yeah. to shock themselves, a painful shock, rather than do nothing. So, one, I, I think it's a given Unless you're really a different kind of person, it's very hard to pull this off. But doesn't this have appeal to you? And don't you think if you could do this kind of thing, you'd be healthier the other six days? Well, I, I think that's the argument that they make, that this is good for your head. It's good for your brain. Uh, your brain it's good for your uh, blood pressure. He, he talked about how it's definitely good for your relationships. I think this, uh, this Heller guy uh, wrote that it gives – he and his wife have a chance to really see each other again, which is a very romantic kind of kind of notion. But I mean, I think it's almost impossible because people have so much to do, right? They're doing the laundry, they're cooking. Excuse you cook me. all Excuse day. Excuse me. What did you do yesterday that ha- had to be done yesterday that couldn't have waited till today or have been done on Saturday? Why don't you give me the whole list? I, t- I told you I was up until two o'clock no, in the morning preparing for Boston oh, Public, okay. Boston Public Radio. Read the newspapers. I feel like yeah. I have to read the newspapers. I'm a very slow reader, so it takes me a long time yeah. to do that, Jim. You know, read online. Uh, I don't remember what else I did yesterday. Yeah. What'd you do? What did I do? I had some really important things to do that I can't disclose, actually. <laughs> this, it's not, did you cook all day long? I cooked a little Isn't that bit. that what you do? I cooked a little bit. But, you know, I, again, I, first of all, one of, the things that are, one of the things I love about Arthur Brooks's pieces in The Atlantic, as opposed to Jason Heller, I don't mean this critically of Jason Heller, who wrote the piece recently, is Brooks ends every piece with suggestions about how to accomplish yes, the state that he's suggesting. And he says, start small. And so for people like you and me who are sort of type A types, uh-huh. starting small would be like a minute. Can you do a minute <laughs> doing nothing? And then you expand it to two. He said if you're on vacation, do an unstructured kind of thing. Soft fascination well, an is another term. What? That's an interesting one. What's that? Uh, you know, because um, lots of people, when they go on vacation, they pl- they have the whole Plan thing Plan every damn out. minute. They're it's getting horrible. up at 7 o'clock in the morning to have their breakfast, to get in the bus at 9 o'clock to go to the tour here and tour there. And if you don't go on every tour, then you feel you're not getting your money's I worth um, out of your vacation. We should ask Rick Steves about this next time he comes on because um, he ha- he has tour buses that go everywhere uh, every day. But I'm sure you can just say you can opt out and say you want to spend the afternoon yeah. at home sleeping. But I think he talks about – Or on your own, soft fascination, right. as he said. Take but a nature walk. He talks about uh, people uh, – this is um, Brooks – talks about people having a very – him having a very difficult time sitting on a beach. Now, I can sit on a beach for a very long time. And do time. nothing? Yeah, well, or reading usually, a book counts. Usually, as I read. Nothing. I sit in the, well, that counts as nothing. Yeah, I, I read or sit in there, you know, just doing doing yeah. nothing. He says he can't even sit in a beach. He gets really nervous, and he can't even sit through a movie. So he's got an extreme problem to deal with, I guess. But I think the rest of us, isn't that why you go go to the beach? 
in the summertime is just to sit on the beach, right? Maybe you do. I mean, I have to say, I feel bad I that I, do I that, wasn't Jim. willing to say what I did yesterday. What did you do yesterday? I feel like I should. I, mean, I don't want to get into it in depth. Okay. I actually, this is only in the afternoon from three to four, I applied mm-hmm. electric shock to myself just to <laughs> keep myself busy. 877-301-897. This is one of these ideas, like a lot of ideas in the world, in the abstract, sounds unbelievable. I just don't think I have the ability to pull this off. I'm always trying – I'm almost like the experiments that Arthur Brooks was talking about. I'm always trying to find something to do, even if there's no need to do the something that I'm doing. Do you know what I mean? I think I think that, that we are keyed to the idea that uh, time is money <clears throat> and that we should spend every opportunity uh, – Working and if not working, then fixing up our house or um, cooking for the it's next guilt. week. They meant, or, it's guilt. Yeah, that you're supposed to be working twenty four seven. I think your family would think it's weird if you just said, "I'm going into, I'm going to spend a secular Sabbath, and I'm just going to stay in bed all day long, binging on television." I think, yeah, I think they'd be jealous. I think they'd think probably, "I wish I could do the same kind of thing." All I'm saying is that the point I'm trying to make with you is all the things that you think. And by the way, this is directed at me, too. This is not an accusation. I'm in the same boat that you're in. All the things that you and I convince ourselves that we need to do on Sunday to get prepared for the week, frankly, if you got up an extra half hour earlier on Monday, you'd be perfectly able to do all the yeah, things. Yeah, well, not everybody's able to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Well, whatever, people, whatever. We know. And by the way, there's, the other, the, the, there's also um, a lot been written about a Sabbath day, which used to be a religious thing, right? Yeah. On Sunday, you were yeah. supposed to, or Saturday, if you were Jewish, you were supposed to, you know, not um, uh, drive if you're Jewish, not uh, do any work if you're Jewish. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to just, you know, go to right, the, exactly. go to temple, hang around with your family, walk to temple. Mm-hmm. And on Sunday, uh, when I was a little girl, that was kind of the idea too. You're going to spend Sunday with your family having Sunday dinner. Mm. The, the stores weren't open. You couldn't go to the mall. You couldn't go shopping. You couldn't buy liquor. You couldn't do any of these things. Blue so laws, almost, they were, they were yeah, cold. So yeah, so the state almost made the decision for you. There wasn't much you could do except maybe go to a restaurant. But nothing was open on Sunday. And I, I think we lost something when we opened everything up on Sunday because now everybody's got to work on Sunday. If you work at the mall, you got to work on Sunday. If you work... Um, you work at the mall? No, but a lot of people work at, at malls, Jim. They do. Okay, yes. so we have a couple of questions <clears throat> on the table. Get to your calls. One, do you ever do one of these do-nothing days or even half a day? Two, would you like to? And three, actually, and we'll pop you up to the top of the list if you're in this category. If any of you give electric shocks to yourself <laughs> just for fun, we would love to have you call and we'll put you okay. up to the first call. One more thing and then I'll be quiet. What? I think when it snows a lot. Those are the, maybe the times that we do these do-nothing days. You may go out and shovel um, mm. or you hire somebody to shovel. Yeah. But if it's that's one of the beauties of the wintertime, that if it snows eight inches, you're going to stay in the house. Again, well, it's never going to snow eight inches again out here. Well, so six inches, that. whatever, or the weather's bad. Yeah. If you have kids, yeah. they ruin it because you can't relax. But but when your kids are – you don't have any children yeah. or your kids are grown and gone – then you can have to sit around on sun, on a snowy day and do nothing. What are you talking about? Why wouldn't you? You'd read the same paper you read on a non-snowy day. What is the point of that? Okay, well, the fine. The problem Let's is go. if you don't read the papers on Sunday Lines morning. Are full, you know when I mean? do you when do you read the papers? Monday morning. I can't read them on Monday morning. Why Jane? can't you read them? Monday because morning? I'm a slow reader. Because you're making a butter and potato sandwich. Is that why? <laughs> Sam, Sam in the car. car. Hi. Hi, Sam. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. I'll keep it short and sweet. Just me personally, between working full-time and having kids, 
I did it just this morning. I literally call it putting a blanket on my brain and tucking it in and just shutting every every bit of sensory stimulation down and doing nothing for an hour. It's very therapeutic. How do you pull oh, that off? How do you I do that? I love it. I, be, I think I reached a point of being so overwhelmed and just like living in a heightened society, work, kids, you know, the craziness that I just gave, I just told myself, you know what, you're just going to shut it off for an hour. Just do it. It'll save your sanity. And after you kind of tell yourself that a little bit, you know, not a Whoops. Oh, Sam, did we lose you, Sam? Realize this is going to oh. save my sanity. Sam, we great. lost you for a second, but I wanted to ask you, do you mean like you sit there on the couch and you meditate or you sit there on the couch and read or you sit there on the couch and do nothing? Or what? how do you pass I'll this hour? There, I'll, start, I'll light a candle. I'll put on something fuzzy and comfortable, Ooh. you know, something like that, some aromatherapy, and I'll just let oh. my brain have a rest. All of our brains need a rest. It, it, it takes practice to be able to do it, but it's worth it. Sam, good for you. That is great. And by the way, you know what Sam is practicing? Starting small, which is Arthur Brooks's first well, lesson. She started for small. She's, she's doing an, an hour. hour. Well, an hour, an hour is not a day. An hour think, is a good I think, start. I think we have the, the ticket here, Jim. You ever been in one of those a isolation candle. tanks? Yes, I have. Have you really? Yeah, the problem with being in an isolation tank, if anybody's been in them, you you, you get into this very salty water. So you float. Water, without, you float, yeah. and they close the top, and it's pitch yeah, black. Yeah, yeah. The, the problem is, you know what you hear in there? Nothing. Your heart. Oh, you do? And then you start freaking out about whether your you heart's do? beating too fast or too slow. Or, yeah, that's the problem. Have you been in one? You would, yeah. If you had been in one, didn't you remember that? I do. You boom, 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 I, I boom. Wait, what's that again? Can you do that again? <laughs> I'm just, because it was bringing back a memory right at the end, the third boom. Give me a, good, one boom, more time. Boom, boom, now boom. Now I recall, yeah, I do remember yeah. that. Let's go to Nancy in Providence. We're talking about do-nothing days, recommended by Jason Heller in the Atlantic, and actually Arthur Brooks in the Atlantic, too. Hi, Nancy. Hi, good morning. And to you. I am someone that is always wanting to do something, needing to do something. But in the last, say, six years, I force myself every day, 10 minutes with an app on my phone, free, um, to just meditate. And some in the beginning, Jim, like you said, one minute, I'm like, what the heck? And I was dying. But now I can do 10. I don't push myself. I don't want expectations that I'm not going to reach. So 10 minutes. And believe it or not... It has helped make me relax more when it's time to go to sleep. My sleep is better because of it. I know how to be more relaxed, and I'm not a relaxing person at all. I think that's great, Nancy. You know, that's fabulous. I, so many people talk about how they meditate. I think it's a real. Don't you med- you yes, meditate for years, and I think it, I think it really does. Wait a second. So why are you saying you don't panic. do this? You meditate. You do. Well, do it. I'm not taking a whole day to do this. Nancy, and, that was great. Thank you. What's that? Oh, we lost her. I'm sorry. Listen to this from Rob from Salem. I feel like most of the people around me take every day as their do nothing day. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Paul and Braintree says Catholics aren't supposed to do servile work on Sunday, loosely defined as manual labor. Uh, by the way, that's not followed by by him. But I don't know that a lot of people do the uh, uh, Sabbath thing. Although I live in the Hasidic triangle, uh, rectangle in Brookline. Yeah, what does that mean? I mean, I'm, it's a lot of Hasidic Jews uh-huh. living around me or Orthodox yeah. Jews live around me. And you see whole families on Sunday walking to temple. Uh, the men are dressed up. The women are mm-hmm. dressed up. I mean, and... With kids, so what's your point about that? Well, they are keeping a Sabbath, and it's from sundown on Friday, right? We have the Shabbat dinner Friday night with your family. You say your prayers, you drink the wine, you Uh do whatever, and then until sun uh, sundown on Saturday, Uh, they're pretty good about it. 
So uh, before we take a break, I know you hate talking about this, but since the woman brought up, Nancy brought up meditation, Mm -hmm. when you meditate, how long do you do it for? I try to do it for 25 or 30 minutes. That is huge. What do you? Why didn't you say that? That's huge. I'm just zen. And how do you come out when you're done the 25? Can't you tell how calm I am? No, I can't. When you come out of the 25 or 30 minutes, how are you feeling? Um, Very relaxed. You are? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it works. It takes a long time because, as the Buddhists say, everyone has a monkey brain, and the thoughts are flying in and flying in and flying in and flying in. But after a while... Uh, you don't have them anymore. What's the name of the guy from ABC News who used to work with me at NEC and wrote that book we had him on? Oh, 10% Happy. Dan Harris. Dan, Dan Harris, Harris yeah. wrote a book called 10% yeah. Happy. Yeah. After he had a cocaine problem on the air. No, he admitted it. We're not doubting <laughs> and, the guy. He talked about and it. And yeah. like basically had a nervous breakdown on national television. He decided that he better get a grip. And he started... Um, he is a Buddhist meditator, I believe. He is? Yeah, and he wrote about it. It was a good book. It was for a good pe- book. People that are absolutely harried. Okay, we're talking about where anybody can manage something called a non-secular Sabbath or uh, a secular Sabbath, for that matter. Are you relaxing one day a week and doing nothing? Or would you find it so loathsome to even contemplate that, as Jim says, you'd have to give yourself electric shocks to get through the day? Your number is 877, our number, rather, is 877-301-8970. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. Marjorie's laughing already. We'll find out what that's about in a minute. We're at the library tomorrow. Michael Cox, the relatively new police commissioner of Boston, is going to join us for the first time. We're really looking forward to it. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about do-nothing days. If we can't get a four-day work week, which I think we're close to getting, by the way, are you dedicated to making at least one of your weekend days as slothful as possible? Does it recharge you or does it make you more anxious about your coming week when you're not preparing for it? Give us a call or text us, 877-301-8970. Why are you laughing? Well, they're not that funny. They're just kind of interesting. What's that? Um, Someone said, yesterday I vegged out on Turner Classic Movies, watched the double feature Casablanca, followed by The Way We Were. That counts. And then Joan from Rhode Island says, I can't relax on Sunday. The apprehension about Monday going back to work is too ingrained. It feels like going back to school no matter how long I work and old I get. Someone else said they rode, this is Joe from Plymouth, rode the train into Boston and wandered aimlessly. Uh, the whole time. Well, and one great. person says their family actually plans a no plans day once a month. Rather than do nothing, no plans mean we can do whatever moves us. Could be social activities, physical That's exertions, great, organizational tidying, but no beforehand commitment. I'm not sure what that means. No, Steve, no beforehand commitment. I mean, you don't schedule the day. You do oh, whatever okay. you feel like on that particular okay. day. Uh, that qualifies. And Steve from Marlborough says he does nothing by listening to you and me, Jim. <laughs> I thought he was going to say, we do nothing by doing... In any case, let's go to Wellesley, where Laurel is on the phone. Welcome, Laurel. Hey there. Hey there to you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Honestly, I'm in shock. I've tried to reach you guys for years, and I love your show. Thank you for keeping on This is your moment, Laurel. Thank you. Oh, God, and I'm I'm not very clear right now, so wouldn't you know? Um, So, first of all, it really reminded me of a writer I love, Anne Lamott. Oh, I love um, her. Yes, Tender Mercies. Talks, yes, Tender yeah. Mercies. And, um, a lot more. And She's great. She mm-hmm. talks about um, taking cruises. And a cruise is 
minimum two hours. Uh, you have to be horizontal and you have snacks, magazines, whatever. <laughs> and that's what she, you know, when she needs a cruise, that's what she does. She has to do nothing. Do you um, do it? That's her do you do it? Um, well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll go to my last comment first. Um, because of chronic illness, I, um, the way I keep my sanity uh, not being able to get things done is I will, if it's really a rough stretch, I'll say, okay, sweetie, it's time to give up and let's, let's, you know, do my vacation time, which is reading like my favorite book. Laura, what's so your favorite, it. what's your favorite Anne Lamont book? Just curious. Um, and uh, it's hard to say, I think maybe traveling mercies at plan yeah. B, okay. but I, I also wanted to say that I think, um, the, the idea of a, a full day, you know, and it's completely new, do nothing day sounds more like a Western notion. And it still has this kind of inkling of all or nothing thinking that makes me feel rigid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the key is for me anyway, is to take, be able to notice that you can take a mini vacation and can be really short, like 20 minutes. But yeah. then you have to figure out what that feels like. That was a great call, Laurel. Thank you, Laurel. You know, that was lots great. of people have described meditation as a vacation for your brain. That's what it's about. Well, that's exactly. I hate to keep quoting Arthur Brooks, but that's yeah. what he says. Start small, and uh, Laurel is doing that, and I think it's great. Okay, uh, uh, this is an unsigned person, yeah. naturally, because. This person says, we spend Sunday drunk from the Sunday brunch. <laughs> After all, Sunday's the only day when it's okay to start drinking at 9 a.m. And here's another By one. the way, why wouldn't, and seriously, why, that would count, right? If you yeah. just have a relaxed, you could go out and, and have, a little, right. have a Bloody Mary and come home and sleep all afternoon. Exactly. Listen to this one. My husband has no problem watching 36 <laughs> hours of TV on the weekend despite the fact that we have a kid. It makes me insane. A lot of sports watching now. I wonder if that qualifies. I don't think so. I don't know why, but I think too engaged. Yeah, yeah, too engaged. It's not okay. just like a passive activity. It's in, for most people who watch sports. <laughs> Many people want to know if listening to our show for three hours, including Paul from Worcester, counts as doing nothing. That seems to be a recurring theme here among the texters. Let's go to Gre- uh, Jerry from Spencer. Hi, Spencer. I mean, hi, Jerry. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Excellent. Good. Um, I just say my my brother and I we get together usually at least once a week have dinner, but then we spend from like seven thirty to ten thirty listening to music. We oh. both have large record collections. Oh. We sit there. We have a rule: you cannot talk about family, you cannot talk about work. So we sit and we actually listen to music. That's great. And we won't fight and people in they can't shut up and listen to the music for twenty minutes. They have to talk over. They're not invited. That is a neat idea. That's great. That is a neat idea. Yeah, it reminds me of these movies where you see the couples listening to music and dancing around the kitchen, Jim. What do you mean? Oh, that, oh right. Like in, uh, what was that? There was, what was that? Mo- oh, know. no, it's, it's actually, you know what it is? There's a commercial on CNN for a couple old people who are taking oh, some drug. yes. Who are like dancing <laughs> around, not the anesth- kitchen. anesthetized. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're not, they're re- reliving Oh, that's a very romantic commercial. Which one? It's, they're an older couple, um, and they they were living when he, he first came over when he was like 15 years old and asked her to dance. 
at the school dance, and they dance to this particular song, and there they are, 80, dancing yeah. to the same song. Yeah, it's a very romantic And And by the commercial. way, one of the nice things is, they're, and they're both taking meds as they're doing that, which is really a moving <laughs> moment. You know, one of the problems, I have to say, and you, you said this so well, what? one of the real problems when I'm really trying to do this to do nothing is every time I attempt to do nothing, here's what I hear.
Yeah. And I don't want that on the weekend. And so we have decided that either Saturday or Sunday, depending on what is going on, on a rare occasion we don't do it. But for the most part, we're pretty consistent. And we literally will get up. We might eat popcorn and candy most of the day, watch movies. <laughs> That's great. Um, do t- like we're literally doing zero, and and it it works for us. I don't stress about like my I'm a pretty orderly person, so I don't have mounds of laundry and things like that. And there's sometimes I don't get it all done. Other times I do, um, but I don't. It's not the end of the you know not the end of life if I don't get it all done. Ayana, your 11 year your 11 year old is into this too? Yes. I think that she is loves great. it. Wow. Is wow, it cuz it's time with you uh with no interruptions or is it the do nothing thing itself? Do you know what I mean? Um I think it's the time like she does get to cuddle and things oh, like God, that, but I think she also feels a bit stressed because I'm on her, like, get your hair done, get your shoes. You know, like, she doesn't yeah. want to hear that either when we're trying to get out of the house to get somewhere. You know, Boy, that that's a great, great idea for a kid because you do feel like it, between rushing to school, rushing home from school, rushing to get the homework done, rushing to get to the sports practices or the music exactly. lessons or the dancing lessons or whatever yards, you feel like a total basket case. That was a great call. That Thank you, Ayana. That was great. And that was great. Also, you know that expression, which I can't stand, but uh, Ayana described much better. It's that quality time thing. That's right. like the ultimate quality time experience. Yeah, my children didn't seem to want to spend that quality time with me. Yeah. I don't know what I was doing wrong. Listen to this from Arnie in Rhode Island. Mm. My husband and I make a huge effort, almost obsessive, to be home and listen to the Celtic Sojourn with Brian O'Donovan oh. on Saturday afternoons from 3 to 6. We garden, make a nice dinner, have nice drinks, and just slow down. I can't put into words how valuable it is to us. How great were those two players, by the way, on Friday? They were great. For they're going to be part and of the Brian's St. Patrick's Day thing. St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Five performances. Yep. Um, four locations. Four locations. A couple of them are right in Cambridge on Saturday the 18th. I think they have one on uh, Wednesday up in Rockport. You can get it on the uh, on There's the a streaming WGBH. day, too, on St. Patrick's Day itself. I yes, because they yeah. take the day yeah. off. Yeah. They give everybody the day off on St. Patrick's Fabulous. Day and they stream it. I think they have another one on Sunday, but I'm not sure. But you can see at the WGBH website. And the tickets are really reasonable, too. We have time for one more quick one. Let's go to Marsha in Providence. Welcome. Hi. Um, my name's Marsha. Hi. That's why I I'm said hi, Marsha. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm a teacher of Transcendental Meditation oh. in Providence. And um, I'm just coming home from a, teaching a class this morning. Um, I've been doing it for 52 years. I feel like Ooh. it's keeping me young. And um, it's almost nothing. It's almost doing nothing, but we are doing something. And I say it's almost doing nothing because it's very easy. There's no concentration. We're not trying to control our mind. It's just a very simple process, but you do it regularly, you know, twice a day in the morning when you wake up. It sort of sets up your day. And then late in the afternoon after work, and it really settles you down. So, Marsha, wow. everyone needs this. You know, they need this kind of thing. And, I, I have um, a question. For it. So, yeah. after 52 years of doing transcendental meditation, how has it changed you? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm more focused. Yeah. I have ADD, um, and it's still there, but I can focus on things. Um, I feel that. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't feel that the stress sticks to me. 
so yeah. much. Um, I just, I feel good. I wake up in the morning and I feel good. I have a lot of energy. And sometimes I get tired because I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> Neither of us, none of us are. But sometimes I get tired around 5 o'clock. I meditate and then it's almost like I just woke up in the morning. Wow. You know, Marsha, another yeah. great one. Remember the Maharaji Mahesh Yogi? Yeah, I remember. remember the, the Beatles, Beatles all sure. went to see him way back in the 60s. Yeah. And I don't know how long they, they meditated you, for. But. Did you notice, the? did you listen carefully to the voices of the last three callers? Uh, uh, Mara, Marsha, and Ayana, all of whom were doing a variation on this. Do you notice how calm they all sounded compared to you and me? Well, I, I would say there's a difference between you and me, Jim. Actually. Well, I know, okay, compared to me. Okay, <laughs> sort of undercut my point. Okay, we're taking a break, aren't we, Marjorie? Yes, but I think you should think about what these people I'm thinking said a lot about it, Marjorie. About Thank taking you. a little time off to just relax mm-hmm. and regroup. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk with Michael Curry from the NAACP and the Mass League of Community Health Centers about some issues in health in Massachusetts and also um, some stories in his second role as a board member at the NAACP. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy, Mardrigan. We're at the library tomorrow, as we've said a couple of times. The police commissioner of Boston is joining us for the first time, Michael Cox. Uh, um, uh, what am I doing? Oh, we're now joined on Zoom, my apologies, by Michael Curry. Michael, I was so relaxed, Marjorie. I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. He's president and CEO of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. He's also a member of the National NAACP Board of Directors, where he chairs the board's advocacy and policy committee. Hello, Michael Curry. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, Michael Curry. So <clears throat> Charles Blow had a great piece in the New York Times on Sunday talking about the loss of Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. She's an African-American, first black woman, openly LGBTQ person to lead the city. And she didn't even get to the runoff in the mayor's race out there. And he asked – there was a lot of uh, uh, crime uh, uh, spike during the pandemic. But he asked a provocative question in the column about whether or not uh, – Crime rates at, that rise can be used as a uh, basically a wedge issue, but particularly against elected officials of color, that they get blamed more than a white mayor, <clears throat> excuse me, might be for this. What do you think of what he argued? Well, I think it's an interesting uh, article, and I think it's a debate we need to have is how, uh, one, the crime rates in many cities across this country post-COVID or throughout the the duration of COVID and the impact that's had on families or communities uh, and how that manifests sometimes into crime. And that doesn't matter whether you matter whether you're a black mayor or a white mayor. Uh, it's a systemic issue that we need to address. And how we address that, I think, was really touched on in the article. You know, Lightfoot, I think there'll be a lot of controversy in New York around, you know, her failings, what she did not uh, do well, whether she could deliver the message well, that this was a big city crime issue, a big city issue for all cities. Uh, but yet she had done some great things around COVID and some other areas. I don't think she messaged well. Uh, yeah. But the reality is when you're a woman 
when you're a black woman, uh, when you're a, a woman who identifies as uh, a, a community, the, the LGBTQ plus community, uh, the, the scrutiny is going to be heightened. Uh, and that's unfortunate. I think uh, Charles dealt with that in his article. You know, but the, on the flip side of this, uh, in terms of your question, Marjorie, about people of color in positions of power when crime becomes the issue, I, the mayor of New York City was elected essentially on an anti-crime platform, former cop. And Karen Bass, who was a member of Congress, who was elected mayor of, uh, of Los, Los Angeles, Angeles uh, part of her, her platform was to increase the number of cops on the streets and also declare, I think it was a state of emergency around homelessness. So it seems the message is the issue right now and uh, uh, sort of a what we've traditionally thought of as a Republican platform thing, this tough on crime thing, seems to be the ticket for a lot of Democrats as well, Adams and Bass being at the top of that list. Don't you think that's true, Michael? Or Yeah, you know? I, don't, I don't think it really matters whether you are a president, a sitting president like uh, Bill Clinton, right, with the tough on crime bill yeah. uh, and his crime, uh, his policy, or if you're a mayor or if you're black or white. I think the reality is that sometimes this issue of crime is weaponized and it becomes – you know, dog whistle uh, for more cops, lock more people up. And of course, all of those actions result in uh, disparately more black and brown people, nonviolent offenders uh, serving more time in jail. We we know that doesn't work. Democrats and Republicans have both agreed that uh, the fallout from the Clinton crime bill was a mistake, that it didn't make sense. Uh, so now, of course, people want to win elections and they know that what drives and what motivates people, it's persuasive. What drives people is a sense of security, that that logical fallacy that someone's going to take your property or your life. Um, And many times the people who are drawn to that argument don't even live in those communities that are most impacted by it, like Chicago and like the northern parts of Chicago and other parts of uh, Illinois that was drawn to that argument. You know, let me just say, if I can, uh, as you're speaking, I'm saying Boston sort of went in the opposite direction in a couple of ways. One, in the mayoral race. I mean, the candidate who uh, aligned herself most closely with the police was crushed in the final. And just go back a year or two before that, Rachel Rollins, when she's running for DA of Suffolk County, had a totally different approach uh, uh, to crime. And she won in a landslide. So we may be the outlier in some ways. Yeah, I I think the reality is, and you've heard me say this before, there are social determinants of violence, right? So we can lock people up and and throw away the key, but the problem comes back again is boomerang effect, right? Because you still haven't solved for their poverty, their mental health issues, their food insecurity. You haven't solved for the the support that they need for their families to getting them back into school, to getting them to feel good about themselves, to address the internalized racism that people feel. And if you don't solve for all those things, then we do these Band-Aid approaches where the where the infection is still there. I think what you saw Mayor Wu do, uh, U.S. Attorney Rollins do when she was DA. I hope Kevin Hayden, who's a, a friend, will do this as well. Let's start talking about the systemic issues. Let's solve for the reasons that people commit crime. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And, and we're moving in that direction in Boston and Massachusetts. Why not move that way across the country? 
You know, though, Michael, I, I, I'm curious to ask you because you grew up Lenox Hill, right, in, in Boston. Lenox Street Pro- Projects. Lenox Street Projects, yeah. Um, which, which you know, was, was a tough neighborhood, and and I remember being a reporter back then that when the crack epidemic was was huge, and people were kind of hysterical about the crack epidemic because it was this notion that oh my God, once you had a hit of crack, that it was all over, even though. It, it turns out that we were a little bit ignorant about it. Lots of people, lots of white people were were, were, were doing uh, cocaine and crack exactly. too. Exactly. Yeah, and they were not uh, somehow getting carted off to jail. But in any case, it, it seemed like part of the crime bill was a fear, not understanding, because it was causing people to do bad things like hit their kids that they might not have done if they were sleeping from, you know, doing heroin or something like that. That there was a, that we became hysterical about a drug and that led to this this overreaction to the crime bill. And you were growing up in the midst of all that. So what do you think? I was I was there during uh, the height of the crack epidemic. Uh, some good friends of mine, we talk about it. Chip Greenwich, National Black College Alliance, has hosted conversations on what that was like to live during that period of time. My sister, as I think maybe I've told both of you, my sister was addicted to crack most of my young adult teenage years. So I, I've gone to crack houses. I've you know, seen her give birth to her babies uh, while she was on crack that we then took care of as little kids. So I know that this, we now recognize that we need to have empathy for people that have a substance use disorder, whether they're sitting in a house in Chestnut Hill, uh, a, a very wealthy house in Chestnut Hill, or on a, on a street corner or in a home in Humboldt Avenue, they're the same person. No matter what race they are, no matter what socioeconomic back, background they are, they have a a challenge with a substance use disorder. And we treated some differently. We incarcerated some, we uh, demonized and stigmatized some, and we're still doing that. And I think for people like my sister, uh, and we did it too, by the way, you internalize it. You end up treating people who live in your own home as if they're bad people. Uh, We have to do something about that. Talking talking to Michael Curry. Uh, Michael, we had a discussion with Governor Healy the other day about the roughly 300,000 people who apparently are going to lose their mass health coverage here uh, as a result of the formal end of the of the COVID uh, emergency, uh, effective May, uh, I think it's May 10th or 11th, I'm not sure. Here is uh, part of what Governor Healy had to say. For many, mass health may continue as, as their insurance provider. That's income link. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, but for another group, uh, they're going to have to shift to other insurance. And it has taken time. We've hired a lot of folks to help with that process, also working with healthcare for all. Um, It's not going to mean that people are not going to have insurance. It's going to mean, though, that some people will have a different kind of insurance. Is this a nightmare in the making, despite all the preparation that the governor and healthcare for all are doing? Yeah, I mean, it's a nightmare and it's a perfect storm, right? You know, we've talked as well about the workforce crisis that's going on. We've Mm -hmm. talked as well about the deferred care crisis, that people didn't get their teeth checked, their eyes checked, their mental health, their substance use disorder, that cancer, which would have been stage one, is now stage four. That's a crisis. And then you add on top of this that we're going through a redetermination process after three years of what I'll call presumptive eligibility, that people were allowed to join Mass Health and and to have that coverage and protection. Um, and now April first, um, was it April first? Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think that the dates are so Mass Health will resume the yearly eligibility return, re- determinations, and it'll go through March 31st of 2024. 
But the, the challenge is this. So one is we know uh, Mara Healy and her administration care, right? So I've met with uh, her Medicaid director, undersecretary, uh, Mike Levine. I've talked to Kate Walsh as early as or late as last week about this. They're focused on it. They're meeting with folks. Uh, Amy from Healthcare for All and I work pretty closely together. And what she said to me is, Mike, we got to make sure that we're not disrupting these people who need this coverage and need it at a particularly vulnerable time. We need them to stay covered. And whether that's mass health or we get them to some other coverage, it has to be done with a smooth transition. Many people like my family and those that I grew up with may miss the mail. Uh, I think they call it a a blue letter, right? Or whatever the color of the envelope is. They'll miss the letter and they won't know that they need to then uh, fill it out and answer those questions about their address, phone number, income, et cetera. And they'll fall off the rolls. That is particularly devastating for a time when people in the Commonwealth are vulnerable still under COVID-19. And what happens when that person who ignores the letter or is too busy to deal with the letter and needs medical care and comes in for it? And they're not covered. What what happens to that person then? Well, you know, we're lucky in Massachusetts. This is not like some other parts of the country. You know, we provide care uh, and we can get people care no matter what their coverage status is. But you want a person who's locked in at their primary care provider. Uh, we want, you know, we, we talk in Massachusetts about right people, right place, right time. So how do we make sure people are getting the care that is not the most costly care, meaning it's not the emergency room? It's engaging with their primary care provider or specialist when necessary. It's getting the medications and the treatments that they need along their their process. Um, this is disruptive because it could cause people, we already know that too many black and brown folks uh, are still relying on the emergency room. We have to crack the code on why so many of our, our fellow citizens uh, still don't access primary care and are still availing themselves of emergency rooms. So there's a lot here, uh, Jim and Marjorie, that we need to figure out. But what, what Amy said to me from Healthcare for All is we're all in this together, state government, hospitals, insurers, community groups, advocates, activists, and health centers to try to figure this out. Is everybody who is on Mass Health currently going to get one of these so-called blue letters or just a portion of the people? The 300,000, right? Right. Or no? he, yeah, my understanding is it goes to all of, because they all have to be redetermined. So it's a okay. process that will be renewed annually for all of those uh, folks who are on the on the, on the the rolls of MassHealth. Uh, okay. And the 300,000 are the folks that we anticipate could end up losing coverage uh, in this process. So that is a, a significant number. So you go from 2.3 million people down to about 1.9 uh, million or, you know, 2 million people. Uh, that's a that's a huge disruption within our healthcare system. So, uh, this story about from uh, uh, WBUR actually about one of four mass doctors plans to leave medicine. <laughs> a lot of them because of the within the next two years was yeah. really huge. I mean, fifty five percent of doctors overall say they're burnt out. Sixty three percent of women doctors. Um, is this particularly bad? It is terrifying. Um, it was part of the discussions we had. Uh, within the transition teams, both the transition team for Andrea Campbell to Attorney General and uh, Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor's transition team. Lois Cornell co-chaired the transition team with me. And if you both know Lois, Lois is uh, Executive Vice President of Mass Medical Society, the organization that put this survey out and and, and highlighted this. I, I look at what they put out as sort of the canaries in the coal mine. We know that a lot of physicians, a lot of quite frankly, healthcare providers writ large are burnt out. Um, They're dealing with it. They were already burnt out before. 
Uh, and in some cases, depending on what you talk about in terms of healthcare providers, they were underpaid, overworked. And now they're in a situation where post COVID people are thinking about leaving the profession. So if we go back to the earlier conversation we had, the tsunami that's coming, right? Deferred care, uh, the crisis of some of our community hospitals and health centers struggling financially, um, a, a disruption like in Brockton with the fire at the hospital. When those things happen, they they totally disrupt our system. And imagine now we may not have the providers there to treat them. So when you come in for that appointment, when you make that phone call, we may not be able to, to see you across our, our entire system. Um, um, Steve Walsh from Ma Massachusetts Hospital Society and others, we've been having this conversation about how do we respond to this burnout? I want to say this last thing. So MGH, credit to them, and HRSA, the federal government, gave a grant to the Mass League, our organization, a three-year grant to look at burnout within our provider community. Uh, we're in the second year of that grant, and it mirrors much of what's in this study. People are feeling burnt out. Uh, they're thinking about different careers, but we have strategies that we can do to put in place. Loan repayment is one. How do we offset some of their personal debt? Uh, some uh, wellness coaches that will be on site. MGH is a model from many of the hospitals in the country on how to address burnout. We're really locking ourselves with MGH on this grant to address burnout within the health center community. You know, it seems to me that uh, it's easy for people, those of us who are not in the healthcare community, to attribute all the down, all the burnout things to COVID. But when I speak to the many doctors who I visit, uh, the, the number one thing, and this predated COVID, and it's made even worse since. Yeah, they're all the, exhausted, that, Jim. Well, not because of me, but they probably are. Is the administrative burden is out of control. Isn't, it, isn't that a, a, the one common thread that runs through everybody who's burnout or on the road to being burnout? Yeah, I think it's a contributor, right? I don't know what the percentage is, but in my conversations with all the parties around burnout, it is the administrative complexity. It is inherent in our system, right? Especially as we get more complicated, especially as there are different types of insurance. Um, so I think we still have a challenge both in Massachusetts and throughout the country on how do we simplify, how do we make it easier for providers to do their jobs, uh, meet the needs of their patients, be responsive, but not be overwhelmed. I know some of that audio recording uh, so that people aren't having to type their messages. There are some techniques we could be using. How do we use technology better uh, mm -hmm. are all things that need to be on the table. And I think, you know, Sarah Islin at Blue Cross Blue Shield is a great friend of mine. When I used to work at Blue Cross, Point 32, Kane Hayes, along with the provider community, we, we got to think differently about how we provide care in this country in a way that doesn't burn out our providers. Uh, and Michael, uh, uh, there was a, a Andrea Estes piece in the Globe about <clears throat> the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority that four uh, black employees and uh, filed formal complaints, and one uh, white guy because he says he got in trouble for sticking up for black employees. But what Andrea reported is that there are no black this people among the authority's twenty-five highest-paid paid employees, and no diversity officer. Uh, charged with creating opportunities for people of color. This is kind of astonishing for a major employer. And that the there mass. was extra security provided at events where black oh, yeah. people or black doctors or black uh, yeah, this, uh, conventioneers. Yeah, this meeting of black lawyers. Yeah. Lawyers, because you got to watch sorry. those lawyers, lawyers every exactly. second, as we all know, Michael. Yeah, the guy that was <laughs> put the thing together, he said it was like getting followed around you know, by yeah. security people that he didn't even ask for.
Well, you know, I'm going to say this. I said, you know, we always rush to shiny objects, right? And the reality is this is not unique to the Convention Center Authority. This is written, this is rampant throughout Massachusetts and particularly in Boston. The reality is it's too many C-suites, too many organizations are predominantly white organizations. They're predominantly white male, and we've not cracked the code on how we tap into talent, women, people of color, who have tremendous talent to, to offer these organizations. The convention center is one. Shame on us and shame on the convention center if we don't meet the moment. If the organization is not meeting the moment, you should have a diversity officer. You should have folks of color in your leadership team. You should be engaging uh, um, it, entities that want to come into Boston and engage our communities in a way that they don't feel like there's heightened security or scrutiny. That being said, what I do give the convention center credit to, and this goes to David Gibbons, Gibbons directly, is when I reached out to him and I was the one who proposed the convention coming here some, you know, three years ago. NAACP. NAACP yeah. convention. Uh, Mayor Walsh, David Gibbons, Gibbons and I got together and said, we need to change Boston. And we proposed to the national NAACP bringing the convention here uh, and the convention's coming. So I think that's a, a tremendous opportunity for David and the rest of his team to seize on that little victory, that relatively little victory, to then start getting big victories and systemic change within the Convention Center Authority. But but shame on us if we follow the shiny object of another article, because let's look at the data on our C-suites and our law firms and our medical schools. It is everywhere. They got to work Michael. fast at the Convention Center Authority. Michael, good <laughs> to see you. you. Be well. We've been speaking with Michael Curry, President and CEO of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers, member of the National NAACP Board of Directors, where he chairs the board's advisory advocacy and policy committee. Up next, our food man, Corby Kummer, joins us to discuss food benefits on the chopping blocks. SNAP is is shrinking. And a mysterious case, Jim, of espionage of cookies in Cambridge. (laughs) That's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. I'm Jim Browdy, head on Boston Public Radio in Cambridge. Plans for a large window open view cookie shop are crumbling, frustrating city planners. But the owners behind Crumble Cookies say they're just trying to protect against cookie espionage. We'll get a full debrief on that in the coming SNAP benefit quiz with food policy analyst Corby Cummer. Then it's Tufts Evan Horowitz breaking down Governor Healy's budget and tax proposals and what the law means for you. I'm Marjorie Egan. The Reverends Irene Monroe and Emma G. Price III will join us to discuss how lessons of faith can guide us through the ethically murky waters of artificial intelligence and a nasty dispute between a Jewish teacher and a Muslim family. Then a new study finds a whopping 8 in 10 Americans would pay a premium to fly without the kid next to them on the plane, even if it meant more CO2 in the atmosphere. We'll talk with Boston Globe travel writer Christopher Muther before opening the conversation to you. All that ahead on Boston Public Radio 89. GBH. And welcome to our number two of Boston Public Radio 89.7 GPH. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. We're at the library tomorrow. And as I've said a few times, the Boston Police Commissioner, Michael Cox, will be joining us for the first time. We're joined now on Zoom by food policy writer Corby Cummer. Corby is the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, a senior editor at The Atlantic, 
and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. Hello there, Corby. Good afternoon. Thank hey, you. Corby. Uh, great to talk to you. So um, <laughs> the, the Globe has an editorial uh, this weekend that said, what's with Mayor Michelle Wu and the North End? And this is because there's been fighting uh, over restaurants being able to operate outside on the sidewalks, as many restaurants all around the city did uh, during the pandemic. Um, but the Globe's point is, uh, well, how come everybody else in Boston, Back Bay, South End, they can all be outside, and they can't be outside in the North End? Apparently, restaurateurs are suing, uh, and the tenor of the Globe is that Wu's wrong and the North End restaurateurs are right. Are they the restaurateurs in the North End right? I think that if anybody's getting access to outdoor dining and paying a certain fee for increased trash pickup, then the North End restaurant shouldn't be docked and fined more because they're an incredibly densely populated, densely trafficked area um, that has more trash pickup because there's more restaurants on Hanover Street per like block than there are in other areas. So I don't want to wade in too much on this, but I think the access should be equalized for all parts. And I think the the, the, the Globe is saying, one-way traffic is one thing in the summer, shut it down, make it a pedestrian zone. That's a great idea in principle, but you try rerouting traffic when the tunnels are going to be closed for construction. I'm glad I'm not doing that. Yes, it is congested in the north in the north end. There's no question about it. But, you know, it's sort of like they got it. I guess this is the point the editorial is making in The Globe. They're really getting it coming and going. Last year, they feel they suffered because of the higher fees that were charged them. And this year, they're being discriminated against, they would argue, by not being able to do in-street in Dining, I, I, I'm not. And you know, by the way, the Globe, the editorial, did it not suggest in part that it may be, or did I read that somewhere else? That it might be some retribution on the part of uh, Wu, who I don't yes. really see as that kind of a Paul, but she is a politician. Maybe there is some truth to that. Well, also we should mention that the, the residents of the North End were extremely upset about the trash and the noise and I think rodents, you know, feasting off the, the trash. So it's a lot of blowback from the voters, really, who live there, right? This is, uh, this is bedeviling a lot of cities. There's been endless debate over New York City, which, example, which for example, has not required defunct restaurants to remove the decrepit sheds blocking traffic in the streets. They are really filthy. Um, and it's, it's a live debate right now. There was a column in the New York Times about it just on Sunday, saying residents hate the rats, they hate the traffic. But what's really bad is the out-of-business restaurants haven't even been required to tear down their sheds. You know, can I tell you something? We've got to get to the point where we just close down the damn streets. I mean, it it it, it advances so many causes in so many ways beyond but the. But as jo- Corby said, look at the traffic; they're all one way going up toward. Well, Hanover you know what'll what will happen if I can act the part of uh, the people who are transportation yep. people. Uh, Jim Aloisi and Stacey Thompson are here. People will decide. Well, maybe I shouldn't drive anymore. I mean, it it spurs that. I mean, you know that Mayor Wu is considering closing down Copley, a block away from where we yeah. broadcast. Why, why are you laughing at that? I'm sure you'd love not to drive anymore if they did that in Inman Square, Jim. Well, I think for the media, they'd have to make an exception, obviously. <laughs> so but I, that's and where and there's a fire station on Hanover Street. So there's always going to be these that's problems. Right. Exactly right. The Atlantic was in was on North Washington Street for ten years, and boy, did we know 
North end traffic. I, I'm all for just pedestrian only zones if everybody's got really good public transport and is good on a bike. That's right. Well, you never know. You know, I don't know if we want to say we got really good transport with the ceiling falling down and the teeth. Did you see that video, by the way, of how close that just student got to being yes. hit by a 25 pound ceiling piece? Yeah. Things are going Red line, right? Uh, on the MBTA. Uh, yeah, think, Harvard Square. Yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, we talk about this a lot with you at Corby, but the idea of having kitchen fees uh, to help the back of the kitchen, the back, back of the of restaurant the people, uh, the dishwashers, uh, yeah. line cooks, et cetera, make more money because the front of the house, the wait staff are the ones that reap the tips. I think you're a fan. I think you're a fan of this. I'm a big fan. One of the things before we launch into the discussion is establishing for all the listeners that Massachusetts forbids sharing tips with non-servers. So there are many states that do this. I can't remember the number, but when we have this discussion, we have to look at the predicament of the restaurant managers and owners who are forbidden by law to distribute a portion of the tips every night to people in the back of the house who are not considered to be servers. So that's the premise for this. And so Tres Gatos and, oh gosh, I've got a number of restaurants in JP, but they, uh, David Doyle is one of the co-owners of it. In 2015, they instituted this 3%, now 5% service fee uh, at the end of their checks. First, they explained clearly what it was, both on the check and on the menu. And they said, you don't like it, we'll take it off. It's optional. It's opt in. So that was all really good practice. It's now 5%. Um, And there are so many happy servers and restaurant workers quoted in this piece in the Globe, a really interesting piece about finally being able to make a living, that this really has increased their, their wages and their help. But the other side of it, and it's kind of not to be sneezed at, is if someplace in very good faith tells you, the diner, this 5% staff fee that's going to go to the back of the house people you can't see and we legally can't share tips with, nobody's enforcing that they give it to those workers. There's no actual enforcement that they're making good on their promise. So sadly, that's a big risk of this. And I am a fan of these fees. So what's the solution to that? Some legislation that mandates it? Is that the notion? The solution that the solution I would be to say is allow all states to allow sharing of restaurant tips with back of the house. Oh, I see. You know, it seems you know, like about, there's a there's a lawyer, a class action sort of fire uh, truck chasing lawyer in New York who brought a lot of class action suits, including a very high profile one against Mario Batali. This is before me, too. But it had to get settled because they were trying to distribute tips to other workers who weren't actually serving the diners, and they got in big legal trouble for it. You know, let me tell you, you know, it, it, I'm moving my position little by little through the years uh, uh, about tips and the inequity of the whole thing to begin with, to moving in the direction I know some restaurants have tried this in the United States and have failed, is, you know, a no-tipping thing and just like one fair wage kind of deal. Because I'm thinking when a $5, when a 5% fee is on a check for back-of-the-house people, I would bet you that the vast majority of people, at least a significant percentage of people, say, well, if that's 5%, I was going to tip the server 20%, I'll now tip the server 15%. 
Don't you think the mindset is for somebody who's not in the industry, it's almost an offset kind of thing, you, you know? For absolute sure that is the mindset and the real risk of saying, well, just raise your darn menu prices to reflect yeah. this. The problem is it continues the inequity because diners reflexively tip based on the percentage of the menu cost. And so they are going to have more sticker shock, first of all, that restaurants fear they'll go across the street and get a burger that's too few yeah. dollars. And then on top of it, they're not going to tip back of the house workers if they've already had. So it's just a problem. I saw Corby Kummer. I, I saw this story this morning that was horrifying. I can hardly believe it was the United States of America. People in line for a mile in Kentucky uh, because SNAP benefits are going to be reduced and they're worried about having um, enough food. Um, give us the update on, on what is happening. That's sub, sub, what do they call it? Sub, supplemental nutrition program or something like that. Supplemental nutritious. Nutrition Assistance Program. You've got me doing it, Marjorie. Okay. Sorry, you got it. sorry. It's okay. Snap, um, food stamp. So we talked about last week, what was happening last week, and especially this week is this hunger cliff when all of the pandemic extensions of school lunch, of summer feeding programs, of much more assistance family per family, of the amount of SNAP dollars they could get a month were being ended. Um, and it was 32 states that... Uh, finally, we're ending it all. But what looks like the incredibly good news is that last Wednesday, the Massachusetts House uh, voted on $280 million in emergency shelter, school meals, and food aid programs that were going to run out of money. Uh, Massachusetts had already voted because of this hunger cliff and the end of the pandemic extensions. Uh, they'd already voted, was it $100 million, $110 million to keep these programs in place in the fiscal year 23 budget, that wasn't enough either. And so this passed unanimously last Wednesday, and I assume it's going to be signed into law and take effect quickly. But it's 65 million to keep universal school meals going and $130 million in more SNAP money. But I my understand, but actually, let's hear what Healy had to say. We asked uh, Governor Healy about this on Thursday. Here's a little piece of what she had to say. For a while, the federal government has been providing the SNAP benefit, and that is now ending. And so what I proposed doing through that sub-budget was providing people a little bit more of a glide path so it wouldn't be so abrupt. That's what we proposed in the supplemental budget, and uh, I'm hopeful that, that the legislature will, will um, I, I believe they have acted on that. You know, and even while uh, Governor Healy and the legislature deserve credit for doing this, it doesn't fix the problem. As as Healy said, it's a glide path. My understanding is it's just for a few months that 40 percent of what would have been lost or will be lost under the cut in the SNAP benefits from the feds is provided for an additional few months. But at the end of the day, after that glide path is completed, a SNAP recipient is back at ground zero with what they were getting at the level they were getting pre-COVID. Am I not right about that? Uh, you're only slightly not right in that there was, the Biden administration managed to pass a 12 to 15 percent across the board increase that went into effect, I think, October 24th in SNAP <clears throat> benefits. But it's 2023 and there's a ton of food inflation, yeah. more than 10 percent food prices. So it's barely going to make a dent. No, you're absolutely right. This is not fixing the national problem. Maybe in the farm bill, which is being up for negotiation all year and SNAP is in the farm bill, maybe there can be a remedy 
but it's it's a vexing problem that I don't think the feds are going to fix. You know, Jim McGovern is we, we, had, we don't have to play great. the sound, but Jim McGovern, who's dedicated a huge part of his career to his relentless fight for food adequacy and security for people like everything he does is focused on that. He was obviously he's obviously a congressperson from Worcester, who was chair of the Rules Committee before the Republicans uh, took over. He said in his in a uh, a statement he made complimenting Healy for this initiative that under the current SNAP benefits the what's provided is $2 a meal. $2 a meal is what the federal it, 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 how do people do that? I think that's school lunch. Oh, that's the lunch thing? Well, I'm not um, sure. I'll check. But as far about. as the SNAP challenge, it's gone out of fashion. But, you know, for a while it was definitely a thing. And, um, you know, Mario Batali and non-Me Too chefs um, would lead the national banner to say, I'm going to feed my family on what a SNAP recipient gets every week. And it's a huge, it's been a burden and a huge difficulty for years. It's never been the least bit easy. And is the argument that uh, uh, opponents of adequate funding so that people don't go to bed hungry at night, particularly kids, but everybody, what's the argument that they should go get a job, even though a huge percentage of SNAP recipients are, of course, working? What's the what's the is it just anti-government helping people or what is it? I think the argument is this is a backdoor towards socialist universal basic income, which I will also say is most nutrition advocates' real dream yeah. is just increasing a universal basic income. So they don't want to hand out money to people who should be going out and getting a job. Even though, as I say, a huge percentage of SNAP recipients have a job and just can't afford right. to feed their family, right? Or two jobs. Oh, gosh, yes. Of course. So, Corby Kummer, our food man, uh, apparently what we should be eating uh, here, according to this story about what foods are climate-friendly and which ones aren't, uh, more mushrooms, more oysters, more potatoes, and I guess certain nuts that don't need too much water to grow. Is that where we should be going here? So, our friend Tamar Haspel, who has a monthly column in The Post, and she's just terrific. And she has, she's always full of counterintuitive uh, pieces of advice. And one of them is, let's talk about the nutrition and flavor available in the least climate damaging crops. You know, she has a war on salad greens. So no more salad, according to her. It's much too much water, much too little nutrition, much too much useless land that could be planted with much higher yielding white potatoes, or we all prefer sweet potatoes. Um, so th- she does, and you know, one of the main, main things I really love about her is pointing out how, yes, nuts have a ridiculous, disgraceful amount of water, but compared to annual crops, it's less water because anything on a tree, fruit and nuts, takes much less water and much less um, agricultural input. Once the tree is bearing, it can take five years for it to start bearing it's a much better climate bargain than ripping up crops and putting them in every year. No kale and spinach? We're supposed to not eat those out the window? No, they would not go out the window. And I know how you have kale every night, Marjorie. That's right. So I don't want to deny you that. And spinach um, for breakfast. But 
stop thinking that that's climate friendly. It's not particularly climate friendly and it's okay. not efficient. And one of her great things is stop beating up on white potatoes, even though we all, we all prefer sweet potatoes, which have the same or better nutrition because they have fed populations for hundreds of years, except when there's famine, they're enormously efficient and they're enormously nutritious. Is there, there, wait, white potatoes are also nutritious? Absolutely. They're full of minerals and vitamins. Full. That's right. White so I'm potatoes? So healthy, Jim. I'm stunned. Yeah. They're, I'm an, they're an enemy because of uh, carbohydrate levels and boosting blood sugar, but they are a friend as far as keeping populations alive. Are they still he- – Marjorie puts a stick of butter on each half. Is that, <laughs> is that still healthy for people? No, I don't. No? What do you do? Um, well, sometimes I put a lot – sometimes I actually put olive oil on potatoes. Wow. Yeah. Very 21st century of you, Absolutely. I should say. We're talking yeah, what, to Corby What Cumber. do you put on your white potatoes, Corby? You know, if I'm emulating my childhood, it would be schmaltz. It would be chicken fat and parsley, which is oh. the best thing to make mashed potatoes with. Uh, you know, chicken but otherwise, fat and parsley, I love it. Cream and butter is it. And, you know, yeah. as everybody's individual choices, not only are they completely individual, we don't dictate, but you, Marjorie, go get your cholesterol checked and ask your doctor, is this something I have to worry about? And if she or he says, no, you don't have to worry about it, keep up with a stick of butter and thumb your nose at Jim. Can I tell you what I put on, a, a, even though you didn't ask me, a, in all seriousness, a very healthy thing I put on white potatoes, Marjorie. You know what it is? What? Salsa. Oh, that's a good idea. And it is fabulous, and it is really healthy, and it totally changes the whole experience. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think... Go ahead, Corby. You, you got it, Corby. I think you're, you're echoing the Tamar point, which is you get, for, for less food, the higher flavor condiment you put on it, as in Jim Browdy with salsa, mm-hmm. the better deal you're getting. Mm, exactly. You know what's great on sweet potatoes, I think? No. Uh, cinnamon and sugar. Oh, yeah. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. What are you laughing at? I think you, that's I really believe. good. No. I think it's great, but you're leaving out the marshmallow topping, which in this <laughs> season is ideally yeah. a layer of peeps. Okay, so uh, we have been that's teasing right, all peeps. day a story out of Central Square in my hometown, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where right. the issue of cookie espionage, cookie espionage has arisen. Could you tell us what the, the issue is? In terms of some planning group in Cambridge and what's going on with this cookie First company? I'm entranced by this story. So it's a new chain I don't know about called Crumble that is uh, nationally, I'm sure, venture capital funded. They're opening in Central Square, one frontage on Mass Avenue. And what is the side street? I don't know what the side street is, but it's near the McDonald's at Central Square. It's across from the... Douglas. McDonald's. I think it's Douglas Street, but I'm not... I could be wrong. I'm not sure. And the way they designed it is... The Mass Ave side will have the nice floor-to-ceiling ground floor windows that give life to a downtown, mm-hmm. show activity inside, mm-hmm. and will, I'm sure, be exhaust fuming out the baked goods air, the way coffee roasters exhaust Love out. Yeah. The, yeah, which is wonderful. And lots of these cookie chains do. They deliberately, you know, tempt you and insist and manipulate you. But on the side, where there's lots of windows to the back of the kitchen that are equally necessary, uh, Cambridge City Planning thinks, to give that sense of life and vitality to a downtown. They have proprietary information and trademarked and patented goods that are going in. So they want to put pink 
shades mm. on the windows because they think it's nice and cheerful, whereas the rest of the city thinks it's just a chalkboard for graffiti. <laughs> it's shutting off the whole thing. This is absolutely not the point of, you know, Mayor Menino's Main Streets program, adding life to storefronts. But my favorite part of the story is the spokesperson saying we're dealing with crumble cookies corporate, which sounds like <laughs> worldwide wickets. You know, it's one of those absurd names, crumble cookies corporate. Well, there you go. I'm checking out the place. Is it open, by the way? Do we know if it's open yet or no? I don't think it's open yet. It's not open did yet. you see the picture of that cookie? I did. Oh, my God. And what God. the city has said, which is so logical, is just rotate your plan for this and put the proprietary stuff in a corner that doesn't front on a street and windows. I find that compelling. What's so hard about that? Exactly. Well, I Excellent think you resolved point. the problem. You should get over there and mediate, Corby. Corby, thank you uh, for your contribution today to today's program. We appreciate it. Thank you it. very much, Corby Kummer. Be well. He is the executive director. When was the last the time food? you had a cookie, by the way, uh, Corby? Look at you. I mean, really. No, Yesterday, at the very table from which I speak, we went to a local bakery and we had three giant cookies we cut in half and we had friends over and we polished them off, along with two kinds of packaged cookies, Amoretti and um, those Italian grand something, Molino in the yellow package. Oh. A lot of cookies. Wow. Well, I take it back. Then. Now that you asked. Now that I did ask. Corby, it's good to see you. Man. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Cookie Man, Corby Cummer, Executive Director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, Senior Editor at The Atlantic, and Senior Lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Up next, Governor Maura Healy has laid out how she plans to spend the windfall from the state's new fair share amendment, and she's made her case for big spending on the environment and more in a budget proposal. We're going to talk with Evan Horowitz of the Tufts Center for State Policy Analysis. He knows everything about taxes, and he's going to explain what all this means. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. We're at the library tomorrow, and uh, we'll be joined by the new police, well, relatively new police commissioner of Boston, Michael Cox, for the first time. Governor Healy's first budget spends big on transit and education. A windfall from the new fair share amendment, so-called millionaire's tax, brings new revenue to the state. Her plans include tuition-free community college, more child and family credits, among many other things, including uh, almost a billion dollars in tax cuts, some of which will go to some of the wealthiest people in Massachusetts. We've asked the explainer-in-chief, Evan Horowitz, to walk us through it all. Evan is the executive director of the Tufts University Center for State Policy Analysis. He joins us in Studio 3. Evan, it's good to see you. It's great to be here. Great. Hey, uh, great great to have you here, Evan. So uh, Jim is known as the tax man around the office. I've always called him that. I've always yeah, called him that. Handle most of this because I get a little confused. But anyway, uh, the, the governor has, has, has laid out two different rationales for her tax cuts. One is affordability and one is competitiveness. So what's she talking about? Well, I think the real question is who's she talking to, right? She's laid out different rationales, but those rationales are for different audiences. So there's a competitiveness rationale that she's preaching to 
business, the business community chiefly, and an affordability rationale that she's preaching to progressive groups. The tax package includes things for both of these, um, but she's clearly trying to kind of build a kind of coalition of support across left and right. Can we start in the affordability category, the, the, the things she would at least put in the affordability category? Go down the list of what those are, Evan, if you can, and, and give us your quick thought as to whether or not it achieves the goal that uh, Governor Healy suggests. So I'm going to bracket the most important thing for a moment, which is the child tax credit. I'll bracket that because I don't really think it belongs under affordability. Um, So the other things that do, one is a tax credit for renters um, just to help people get some money back for the rents that they're paying. And that's affordability for people for, for renters. But it's and, pretty short money, though. Yeah, it's not a lot of money. Yeah. And it doesn't help those with the greatest needs because it's not refundable. And that's a technical thing. But, you know, refundable you have to, means you have if you're to not owe paying... taxes to get it back. Exactly. How much, and if you how don't owe money, taxes, you can't, get any, you can't get any back. How much money is it? Uh, I forget the exact amount. It's tens of millions of dollars. But, but no, no, for an individual for renter. Oh, 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 oh. Sorry, they, they want to raise it from three to $4,000 as, as the cap for how much you can deduct. So the okay. d- actual deduction would be 5% of that. So it's, okay. you know, it's not that much money. And again, you have to owe the money to get it back. That's the big problem with that. The other affordability uh, cut is, is for um, the seniors who are house rich but cash poor. So you know, they owe property taxes because they live in an expensive house, but they don't, get a lot of, they don't have a lot of income. So it's hard for them to pay their property taxes. So the state has a system in place to help them, and she wants to make that more uh, generous. Um, that's another affordability thing. Those are small. The most important thing in the package, though, it's half the money, basically, is an expanded child tax credit. And this really is just money. It is just money for people with children. So I don't think of that really as an affordability thing. Why it's not? not? Well, because it helps people afford all kinds of things. But really, it's not like, well, let's make your housing more affordable. Let's make your electronics more affordable. Let's make water more. It's not. It's just we're going to give people money so they can make budgetary choices to afford whatever it is that they think best, chiefly for their kids. Um, so it's, it's much broader, I think, than a kind of targeted affordability thing. It is a, like an anti-poverty measure. And it's one that's proven, right? It's built on a model on a federal program from the COVID era, which reduced child poverty by a significant amount. The state wants to do something similar and provide kind of really meaningful income. And like I said, this one is refundable. You don't have to owe to get it. It really is just checks for people with kids. See, I have to say, I quarrel with your your definition of affordability. I mean, you're seeming to be saying that unless a tax cut is, is targeted at a specific unaffordable part of your life, it shouldn't be called an affordability thing. This, arguably, which, which I think is terrific, the chi- it's the child independent uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, tax credit. Uh, it may- basically makes everything more affordable because not only is it refundable, as you say, even if you don't pay anything, you get a check. There used to be a cap, from what I understand, of one component of this to a maximum of two kids. Correct. And now if you have seven kids, you, still get, you get seven times the $600 item. Yeah. Uh, I certainly don't want to argue with you about it. I think what I wanted to do was kind of create a category for stuff that is – for the super affordable stuff. Like, this is even better than most okay. stuff that falls under the heading of affordable. It is unique in this way in that it makes everything more affordable. Not that it's worse or less than, but in fact that it is greater than. Evan Horowitz, can we go back to something you mentioned, the senior circuit tax breaker, which, according to what you have um, with the Mass Taxpayers Foundation, says doubles the cap on the circuit breaker for seniors from 1200 to $2,400. I, I assume that means they get a break on, on their taxes at that amount. But what I don't get is... Because I, I think some other places do this, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you're over 65 or maybe over 70 or 75 or something, you've lived in your house for 40 years, but your taxes in towns where prices have gone through the roof are you know, 10 grand a year, 12 grand a year in some of these towns, and, and you are not in a position to pay for that. Um, people get driven out of their homes in their old age. 
right? Yes. Even if they yeah. have no this mortgage. Is, right. This is a real problem. People who have expensive houses and high property tax bills but very low incomes. The senior circuit breaker is one of the ways to deal with it. It's probably not the best way to deal with it because towns need this tax revenue, right? This property really is valuable. And towns need the property tax revenue. And there are other ways to structure it where, say, it, it works like a lien on the house so that the town will get the property tax later when you sell the house. You don't have to be driven yes. out now. You can, you can hold the taxes in abeyance. There are other ways to handle it that are better than the circuit breaker, but the circuit breaker can be helpful. So why don't we think of these things? I mean, that, that makes sense. You see these reverse mortgages. You see them advertised on television sometimes. That seem, would seem to be a great idea that you wait till the person dies and then take it off the sale price. I, so why didn't you run for governor? <laughs> No, it's a good but idea, I mean, and, and it is being tried in different places, and I think expanding that actually makes more sense than raising the cap for the senior circuit breaker. So some why do we do it program. this way? Why do we um, always well, we do have it, it in place? Way. You know, a lot of the what drives this terms of this particular tax package have to do with what are we already doing that we could tweak pretty easily, rather than yeah. what could we do that would be wholly new and maybe the best approach. So a lot of the stuff here has that kind of structure. So it's kind of little tweaks here and there. Well, I would argue the child dependent thing is not a little tweak no, at all. That's it's the, huge. That's the big one. It's huge money. Uh, it, so I don't think that falls in the tweak category. Can I ask you two political questions? I don't know if you'll answer them. And then we'll get to the tax breaks that Healy is proposing that would benefit primarily wealthier taxpayers. My thesis, based on nothing, as to why uh, they, a very similar tax package uh, advanced by Charlie Baker was not passed by the legislature is the legislative leader said, we're going to do tax cuts. We'd rather do them for a Democrat more Healy than for the Republican governor. Does that make sense to you? No. Why not? <laughs> um, I don't think that's why it fell apart. I think it fell apart because of 62F. Not to, not to, we have to that's do the, a whole that's explanation of 62 yeah. So basically, Hold I on, think legislative guys. leaders... Uh, you're going to say that again. Yeah, I, I'm going to go through that. that tax cap money that I'm we got back. Up. 62F? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll explain it. I'll get there. I'll get Good. there. So basically, I think legislative leaders were ready to push a tax package like this at the end of last session. They were very close. The deadlines were ticking. and But I think they were going to get over the finish line with this. And then the state announced that they were going to be returning $3 billion to taxpayers because of this forgotten law from the 80s mandating that they do it. The 1986 tax cap, Barbara Anderson, Citizens exactly. for Limited Taxation. We all got to check. this is what disrupted okay. the ability to pass Okay, the tax I have package. another t- political question. Uh, one of the things that is missing from this package, which I found really surprising, I forgot to bring it up with Healy the other day, is increasing the earned income tax credit, which almost everybody agrees. It's the only thing that Bill Weld and I ever did together when I was running the Tax Equity Alliance. Everybody believes this is a really good way to funnel uh, tax revenue to low and moderate income people. Baker had it in his package, and my thesis here, you're probably going to reject this one too, is the reason it's disagreeing with you. The reason uh, this is, I think you're paying me back for criticizing it before. Uh, The reason, we're talking Evan Horowitz from Tufts, who has very thin skin, obviously. Uh, uh, The reason that she didn't do it in her package is because when you heard quotes from the Speaker and the Senate President, let's stay with the Senate President, Spilka. Spilka said, I like this thing. Uh, We should do an earned income tax credit. My thesis is this, is that the deal was cut. Don't do the earned income tax credit. So when it gets to the Senate, we can add the earned income tax credit. And I, Karen Spilka, and we, the senators, will get credit for that provision. I mean, I guess that's possible. Uh, I do have a slightly different theory. What is it? Which is that 
they decided that the child tax credit is actually a child independent tax credit is actually a better way to get money to people in than need. Than an earned income tax credit. For the reason that it has simplicity, right? It's not, it's, it, there's a lot of problems with the EITC in terms of getting people who are eligible to actually apply, mm-hmm. right? And you don't have that with a child tax credit. The money just goes out. And so I think they expanded that, and the additional money that went to the child tax credit came from the EITC on a base, on, uh, based on this decision that it was actually kind of superior in terms of getting money to people who Okay, so in terms of the tax cuts themselves, when uh, Marjorie asked Maura Healy to list them, she listed all of them except the two that went to wealthy people, and I said you left those out, and then she proceeded to explain them. Here's what Maura Healy had to say to us on Thursday about the proposed raising of the threshold above which uh, the estate tax would kick in. Here it is. We did the math. We did the analysis. We looked at what kind of households would be affected by this. I proposed lifting that cap to $3 million. As I say, uh, Massachusetts also is an outlier. Only 12 states even have an estate tax. And at a $1 million, we're the lowest state in the country along with – we have the lowest um, cap in, in the country along with the state of Oregon. So – you know, I understand it's a subject of debate, but honestly, I am focused on affordability and I am focused on competitiveness. I think we'd all agree every with every word she said until the last three, affordability and competitive. She didn't argue this is about affordability because obviously you need $3 million at least when you're dying yeah. to have it kicked in. Competitiveness was her argument. Does this improve our competitive uh, uh, status vis-a-vis other states by – If what we're competing for is the ability to keep very wealthy seniors in the state. If this is a top priority that we want to keep very wealthy uh, people who are who have retired, most, mostly retired from work here in Massachusetts, then yes, it, it certainly helps to reduce their taxes. I don't know that it doesn't help the economy overall. I don't think very much, and I, I don't think that you know that would be a top priority for me. Um, the other issue here is. It doesn't have to be a tax cut, right? There are problems with the estate tax. The fact that it kicks in a million dollars really is a low threshold, and there are a lot of, say, upper-middle-class people in the state who have estates of that level. They, ha- they own houses that are worth that much. Exempt a house. Is that what you're going to you, say? No, I'm not going to say that. I'm saying you could raise the threshold and change the rates, right? You can do that and, and therefore fix the estate tax without losing that much money. So uh, raise the threshold but also raise the rate so yes. that if it kicks in, we're still not going to lose as much. We won't lose as much money and only wealthier estates – Precisely. Uh, would be would pay. I think it's a great idea. So she's doing that basically to try to get business to buy into this tax package. Is that or legislators. Or legislators. Well. That's a very good point. Yeah. So there, you have to think of the, the two pieces of this tax plan that are really aimed at the business community at wealthier folks, the estate tax and the short-term capital gains. The estate tax could be aimed at legislators. That was in both legislative plans at the end of last year, right? The Senate and the House uh-huh. were interested in cutting the estate tax one way or another. Not, not this much, but they were interested in that. The short-term capital gains... Explain that to people. So what yes. that means. if you invest money in something for a short period of time, less than a year, and then you take the money out, you pay a higher tax rate because you didn't invest for the long term. And the federal government does the same thing. If you invest for less than a year, you pay ordinary income tax. You pay a higher rate than you do if you do long-term investments. So the state has this. And they're suggesting, no, 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 we should have the same tax rate for short-term gains as long-term gains in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, what do you think as of the well, financial, As a financial lady, I just wonder, though, why, why would people do that? Why would you have – who does that kind of invest, short-term investing? Uh, if you're a house flipper would be one example. Okay, house But flipper. lots of people, like, you see some stock went down and you're like, you know what? This is going to turn around really quickly. I'm going to get in. I'm going to get out. A lot of people doing crypto, they were okay. getting in. They were getting out. That's I'll give you an example short-term. that's much closer to you, Marjorie Egan. What? I leased my Genesis G80 for three and a half years. Yeah. I bought it in December. 
because I knew that since I drove it almost not at all during the pandemic, the value would be good. And I sold it three months later for a $4,000 profit. That Ooh. is that. Un- yes. That You've is got a it. short-term capital well, gain. I do, but unfortunately, I'll be under the 12% thing, yes. <laughs> As which you I am be. happy to pay, by the way, I should okay. say. So that's another example. So how about this and, one? The competitive- so that one, that one, the legislature didn't pick up. Charlie Baker had recommended it, um, but the legislature didn't include it in the tax packages, so it's unusual to see that back. Whereas the estate tax was included, this one has been kind of revitalized for reasons that are hard how to explain. How does this uh, score on the competitiveness front? Uh, I think even lower than the estate tax one. Yes. I think if you're worried about keeping wealthier people in the state, the estate tax does matter to those people. And the short-term capital gains doesn't as much because generally people who make a lot of money over their lifetimes, they invest for the long term. Uh, Investing for the short term is not a good strategy for building wealth anyway. So taxing it at a high level is not not a big problem for people who have built wealth. So, Evan, the people that didn't like the millionaire's tax were uh, assuring us that that once it passed, that droves of millionaires would be – leaving the state. Uh, this was Shirley Young wrote about this, uh, your former colleague at the Boston Globe. And on Friday, Jim asked her to name a single person that had called her to say that they'd moved out of state and she couldn't name anybody. So so do you think that's a, a legitimate issue? Yeah, I think people are going to move out of state. I mean, we, you do. we, we did an estimate of, of this as part of our, our, our package. And we didn't think a lot of people are going to move out of state. I don't, I don't think it's a major cause for concern. But some people will say, you know what? I want to live in Florida. The weather's nicer, and I can avoid taxes. And maybe I wouldn't have made that decision just because of the weather, but now with the taxes too, yeah, I'm getting out. I don't think it'll be a lot of people, but it's not made up. Okay, can we talk about the millionaire's tax for a second here? I I had never thought of this before until I read – I'm not even sure what organization put this out. I don't think it was yours, but it might have been. Is without losing people, which we're going to do regardless here, the threshold above which the millionaire's tax kicks in – amazingly, is a million dollars of income. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. What I was unaware <laughs> of, even though I am the tax man, or used you are to be, as Marty said, was the yep. following, that we are one of a handful of states that says you could pick one filing status for federal taxes, let's say married filing jointly. Yeah. Let's pick a number. Uh, one person in the family makes uh, uh, $990,000. The other a spouse makes $990,000. If they file jointly on the federal level because they get some tax advantages, they say, hey, Massachusetts is one of the states that lets you change your filing status uh, uh, locally, meaning – if they had a file jointly, they'd have almost $2 million in income, and they'd obviously be subject to the millionaire's tax. But because they can decide to file as a, in a different status in-state, they file separately, and neither of them pays a nickel. Is it's, that – It's clever, right? I mean, so – But it's also legally doable. Yes. For the moment, it is legally doable. And this is another thing. So when we modeled behavioral responses to the millionaire's tax, I said we, we didn't expect a lot of people to leave. What we did expect were a lot of people to – Play with their play do some games with their taxes and do this kind of thing, and you lose you know something like twenty five percent of the revenue from games like this. So this is a kind of loophole. I think there's a decent chance that the legislature kind of cracks down on this and requires people to file the you same. You know way that, federally. or you're just guessing? That? Um, you heard that? I, I've not no, I've not heard a commitment okay, to that, but okay. I've heard interest in it. Yes. Okay. Um, so yeah. I think there's a decent chance of that, uh, but there will be another thing, and a thing after that. There will be tax games around this that will be played indefinitely, and we're just going to have to be really vigilant about it if we want to limit tax avoidance and tax evasion. Now, Peter and Wellesley just texted Jim to say, Jim, you are kidding yourself. Apparently, Peter has several friends having Mm -hmm. lived in Massachusetts all their lives are planning ahead that when they retire, 
They're getting out of Dodge to avoid these higher taxes. Mm. Peter is from Wellesley, where there's lots of people paying high taxes. Okay. I, I don't buy it. Again, when I, they're all going to call Shirley Young. We know that. <laughs> and she promised she's going to give us the names, home addresses, <laughs> oh, and can I add private here? cell numbers of all the people involved. Why? That, that when they retire phrase is really important. Because yeah. one of the things you worry about in competitiveness is people moving and taking businesses with them. People moving and taking jobs with them. If they're really moving after they retire, they're so not what? taking businesses. Exactly. I mean, we may want to keep right. them and say because we love them deeply, but the risk for competitiveness is extremely low if lots of retirees are leaving the state. Well, that's Jim's theory, is that if you have children in school here and you have a house here, are you really going to pick up stakes and go to Florida with your kids? I, I, I don't think there will be that many people that do that when they have children. Even your kids. I'm used to going to the ART. I'm used to the movie theater at the end of the block. I love the restaurants in my community. Because i got to pay 4% on the more than million dollars I make, I'm going to pick myself up pack myself and move to... I just don't... I mean, yes. I'm with you. There'll be some small number, but that's probably about it. Yeah. Lots of millionaires are what Jim describes. They're embedded millionaires. Embedded. Tied a, to I'm going to use communities. that term. I like that. <laughs> that's a good term. But then there are also crotchety millionaires, and some crotchety millionaires don't want to pay taxes, and they're going to move out, and there are people like that. Okay. So uh, on the spending side, uh, just I just really have one question. The millionaires tax, a lot of people, me included, not that it matters, thought that it was really important that this the revenue from the millionaires tax go on a separate fund so that there was not uh, uh, some messing around with the money. And Bait and it, switch. Rather than it being added money on education and transportation, it just replaces some existing money. Did they create a trust fund or some separate they, fund? Okay, so they did, and it may make you happy that they did, and they were able to track this money. However, I don't think it should make you happy. Why? Because I don't think there is a way to get around the fact that this money will be fungible and will be moved around. I don't, I don't think keeping track of the accounting answers the fundamental question, which you can't really know, which is what would have happened in the absence of the millionaire's tax? How much money? Well, you Take know, the student not what would have happened, but what did happen. No, you but can... what would have happened really matters. Like, okay, so Governor Healy is fully funding the Student Opportunity Act, she and is, she's yeah. doing that not with millionaire's tax money. So in an accounting way, she's doing that from the general fund. However, if there were no millionaire's tax money, she might not have been able to fully fund that because she might have needed that general fund money for other things that she's funding with the millionaire's tax, some of the transportation investments, for instance, some of the child care investments. So you need to know that in order to say, well, is the millionaire tax money really going to child care or is it actually going to the Student uh, Opportunity Act because that wouldn't have been fully yeah. funded? And you can't – we'll never know that. So it's good that they have this accounting system in place. It's good that there's a trust fund. I don't think it answers the fundamental question about whether this money will really end up in the places – that it was but isn't somebody like you going to do your best to try to figure that out? So, yes. But I will say it is not – it is a non-trivial – you have to compare yeah. the counterfactuals to like what happened in similar states, what happened in other states. Well, what, you know what's also hard. non-trivial to me is that the amount of revenue that's going to be generated this year from the millionaire's tax is estimated just a little over a billion, which almost equals the amount of tax revenue that uh, Moore Healy is willing to give away under the Healy tax cut plan. Is that not a problem? I mean, it's a problem if you were hoping to raise money for new spending. Yes, if some of that new spending could be child independent tax credits, maybe the thing to argue is, well, actually, the millionaire's tax is funding child independent yeah. tax credits. That's a good point. Yeah. Now, Evan Horowitz, I have uh, a, a, a one last question for you. We always recall Massachusetts here in Massachusetts. We have all these stories um, that – People are leaving here to go to New Hampshire because there's no income taxes, or they're going to Florida because the taxes are so much uh, less onerous. Are we still Massachusetts or not? 
Uh, we are not Taxachusetts as we were three decades ago. We okay. are closer to Taxachusetts than we were five years ago, ten years ago. So we're definitely moving in the direction of becoming a higher tax state. Based on state. what? The millionaire's tax? Based chiefly on the millionaire's tax, yeah. yeah. Because the income tax has actually gone down, right? It was 5.3, it went down to, to 5%, but based chiefly on the millionaire's tax. Um, so we're sort of middle of the road yeah, compared we're to still, other states? Yeah, we're still sort of upper middle of the road, right? Just uh-huh. a, a kind of above average tax state, not one of the leading tax states. We're not California. What, is it? what are the leading tax states? Do you yeah. Yeah, it's California, California? New York? Jersey, it's New Connecticut. Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. Well, there's a city tax in New York City, too, which is another. So uh, uh, before you leave, is there some huge thing we should have discussed with you that we chose not to or we just forgot? Well, I think it's just valuable to remember what the state budget is all about. Like mostly what the state does is funds schools and funds health care. Like, you can talk around the edges, we're doing this thing, we're doing that thing. But, like, at a big the joke about the federal government is it's like a, an insurance company with an army. And, you know, state governments are like an insurance company with a school system. That's what we do. That's pretty good. That's really where the money's going. You know, like, in terms of what, what our state dollars are for, education, Medicaid. You know, Evan, uh, one, your stuff over there is great, and it's also understandable for mere mortals. If people want to access any of the reports you and your colleagues put together, what do they do? Uh, Right to the website, cspa.tufts.edu. Try to make it accessible. Who's going to remember that? I mean, mean, forget that. Just look me up. Just look me up. What, uh, so Tufts what? What, you, what, what, do you, what do you type in? Tufts Center I'm on I'm saying CSP, oh, Center, on, Center for State Policy Analysis. So just Center for State Policy and Tufts. I tell you, Evan Horowitz, you are one fast talker, let me tell you. you <laughs> well, are going to spit it out there. My skin's got to get thicker, apparently. Uh, you apparently it does. Evan, it's great to see you as always. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank really appreciate it. Thank you <laughs> very much. Evan Horowitz is Executive Director of the Tufts Center for State Policy Analysis. He obviously knows everything, despite what Jim thinks. Coming up. <laughs> All all revved up. Another edition on BPR here. We're going to hear from the Reverends Iron Monroe and Emma G. Price III on a bunch of subjects, but we're going to talk about this nasty hijab dispute between a Jewish... It's unbelievable. Yeah, a Jewish uh, school teacher and a Muslim family in New Jersey. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie again. We're at the library tomorrow. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox joins us for the first time. Marjorie, just before we start, I don't know if you're watching CNN during the break. I was watching no, John no, King. No. Here's the thing at the bottom of the screen. Trump says he will not drop out of White House race even if he's indicted. And while that doesn't surprise anybody, how screwed up is this world? That's like a serious headline on CNN. He will not drop out even if he's a president who is indicted for attempting to overturn an election. I mean, it's just, well, it's just. I mean, he remains popular with a certain segment I of, of the Republican I should say he does. Party. In any case, joining us now on Zoom for another edition of All Revved Up, and I'm revved up over that uh, on Boston Public <laughs> Radio. Reverend Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist in the Boston Voice for Detroit's African American Heritage Trail. Reverend Price is the founding pastor of the Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Olson, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Together, of course, they host GBH's All Revved Up podcast. Hello to both of you. Hey, thanks for Happy having us Happy Monday, yeah. And to you. Great for being with us. So let's start with a, a clip of President Joe Biden. He visited uh, Selma on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. 
Did I say 50th? I'm I think sorry. so, yeah. 58th, sorry. Mm-hmm. A bloody Sunday. Here he is. Right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. Without it, without that right, nothing is possible. And this fundamental right remains under assault. We know that we must get the votes in Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Emmett, let's start with you. What do you think of what Biden had to say? And what do you think the the chances of our getting the John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment Act passed? Well, I think what he said was correct. I mean, I think, you know, uh, the vote for uh, people of color, particularly black folks, has been under attack since the 1965 Voting Act. Um, You know, and I think that in many ways for him to be the seated president to actually acknowledge that is a huge thing. Um, The challenge is this, that um, we have a divided Congress, uh, we have a divided nation, uh, and we have folks who just are not any longer um, focused on democracy with a a small d, you know. Um, And I think that that's the issue, Um, you know, whether he's going to be able to leverage that and and to unclog the bottleneck or unclog, excuse me, the bottleneck. And that yeah. remains to be seen, but it's an yeah. important conversation to have. Yeah. You know, what bothers me about it is so back in the day when you were fighting for voters' rights, black folks, you had to face the billy club. And now today, still trying to fight against the suppression of the vote, we have to deal with Republican bills. I think that my homeboy, Al Sharpton, was so spot on when he says we're still, you know, we're still struggling for, for you know, for the right to vote and still marching across a bridge named after a Ku Klux Klan senator of Alabama. It just really bothers me. And I think what has bothered me most is, and I think I bought into it like so many others, I think a lot of us thought that Biden could really reach across the aisle. It troubles me, even uh, when we started our session, that there was a poll that said that if Trump ran right now today, he would beat Biden. So in some ways, I feel we're locked with Biden because his black report card just isn't really good. He hasn't really addressed the economy. We're still dealing with the criminal justice reform. Voting rights is, of course, there. But like stuff like everyone else is facing, rising inflation, you know, the rising cost of living. I mean, it's just, you know, problematic on top of just recently hearing about the president's health. It's not serious, but I could see it being used uh, in this Republican, you know, in the Republican primary for the for the presidency about the lesion on his chest. Well, it's a little hard when if the nominee of the other party is about a week younger, uh, give or take a couple of years. You know, the one one thing I should say, though, it's important. <laughs> okay. You know, the voting okay. the voting rights changes didn't make it through the Senate, not just because of virtually unanimous Republican opposition, but because of the infamous Mansion Cinema Axis, because they could have voted a carve out if they had 50 votes, which is how many Democrats there were last time. They could have voted for a filibuster carve-out for this one piece of legislation and passed it on a bare majority because Kamala Harris would have broken the majority. So I'm not trying to let the Republicans off the hook, but it was the inability to move two Democrats that uh, uh, caused this legislation not to uh, not to happen. And by the way, we should recall what the John Lewis Act does, which is worth mentioning, is it would purely restore – a provision in the Voting Rights Act about pre-clearance, as it's called, for mm-hmm. for a district for jurisdictions that have a history of discrimination, and the only reason it needs to be restored 
is because of the guy who is generally seen as the great compromiser on the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, was the man who essentially led that charge to get rid of that provision, which has had That's great right. and serious yeah. consequences. Yeah, Jim, that I, was I, in I, the original. I, that was in the original bill in mm-hmm. nineteen in nineteen sixty five, and that's what we have to understand that there has been consistently a chipping at the original yeah. bill. And you're saying that you know, well, two holdouts on the Democratic Party and the Supreme really, Court, Supreme Court. But it really speaks about the fact that that this is a country that does not want to enfranchise black voters. It's, I mean, because this is this is historic. I mean, I mean, when, when does it stop? And, and the point is, it doesn't matter which party you're on. We really have to look at what does it mean as a country that that talks about democracy, but has been very, re, you know, resistance to enfranchising. Well, Emmett wanted voters. to say something. I would argue the Democratic Party badly wants to enfranchise uh, black voters, whether it's for selfless or selfish reasons. But Emmett, you were going to say something? No, I think Irene hit it right on the nail. I mean, I don't think that the Democrats need to be the the protectors of black folks. I think we Thank as you. citizens of this nation should want each other to have full voice and full vote. I and the fact that we don't sense that, I don't think it's a Democrat or Republican issue. I think this is a human issue and a humane issue. And the fact that we're parsing votes and we're down to one or two votes is is insane. Yeah. And I think this, I got to say this because I appreciate him saying this, you know, as black folks here, we don't have any really great faith in either party. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just that the democratic party at least will, that give us lip service, um, but they don't really deliver. So, so the point is, is that when I, when I have friends who are black Republicans, I don't, I don't even sort of frown on them because it's like, six of one, half a dozen of another. We're trying to figure out and leverage whatever little, you know, power we have of which party is going to address our issues. Also, I think and maybe this is implicit in what's been said, but it's worth being explicit. Were it not for black voters, Joe Biden wouldn't be president. That's correct. And uh, well, black women, black, black women, black women, black women, women specific here. You're right. You're yeah. Right. yeah. We're talking to the revs. So this is an incredible um, story. I'll give the background a little bit. This is in a town, Maplewood, New Jersey, where a longtime veteran teacher of a second grade class had a little girl, a little Muslim girl who wore a hijab on her head um, to school. And one day, at least according to the teacher, um, the little girl had a hoodie over her head and the teacher thought it was um, a hoodie. That's in dispute whether she pushed the hoodie back, pushed the whole hijab back, whether she brushed it off her hair or what. But the little girl went home and told her parents. The teacher said this was an accident. Um, The teacher has been barred from the classroom. She can't talk to the colleagues and the the friends there at the school. She's gotten so many death threats that she had to sell her house. The father of the little Muslim little girl went on this tirade about uh, Jewish people saying, the teacher's Jewish, by the way, that they come with the money, they monopolize a lot of stuff for money, you know, they run Hollywood, all these anti-Semitic uh, slurs. And uh, the um, the case is in court. Now there are lawsuits filed. And the hate on both sides was just kind of extraordinary to me. So um, we talk a lot about teachers leaving. This woman, I think, has been there for 30 years. 30. And yeah. Um, yeah. she's she's out now, at yeah. least... Uh, until this case is resolved. So what did you make of this, Emmett? Well, this is a bad storm that was brewing from the very moment that we 
um, heard about it. So the, the young uh, Muslim uh, black uh, a girl was seven years old at the time. And I don't think anybody approached this situation through the lens of a seven-year-old. Thank you. Yeah. So through the lens of a seven-year-old, if this was an accident, then the appropriate response is an apology. Thank not, you. Yeah. Not lawyers, not policy, not uh, incendiary comments that are racially and culturally and religiously uh, deaf yeah. and, and charged. Yeah. But from a seven-year-old perspective, uh, this young Muslim sister deserved uh, an apology. Yeah. And, that's, and, I, and that, that's yeah. it. That's it. That's it. That that would resolve the matter in and of, of itself. Even if she said she was having a bad day, although we have they have been she's been on the record to seem target black children. All that was needed. Well, we're not sure. We're not sure of that. That's well, from, that's the allegation. But that's the allegation. Yeah, that's the allegation. But it's but it's not to ignore it. It's not coming out of any place. So the, so the point is this here. And, it, and, and it's it's a sort of compounded issue around prejudices on both sides. It's neither black nor gray or, or white. It really is gray. But the most easiest thing to do. And she was she dug her heels on that. And I said, oh, my God, this could have been a teaching moment. This could have mm-hmm. been a humbling moment. This could have been a eradicated and not reach the, the crazy proportion that that it did because then you have here two sides that want to win and it's really nobody's going to win in a situation like this this seven-year-old wants to feel comfortable wearing her religious you know garment and the thing about it is that that I appreciate the rabbi that stepped in who talked mm-hmm. about what he felt like as a kid you know wearing his religious garment Something that could have just largely been a teaching moment grew into something ridiculous. So By the way, the I, rabbi was she, her rabbi well, who criticized right. yeah. her. But we should which, also which, point which out, was really good. But we should also point out the teacher said she did apologize and that everything kind of blew up from there. So she she did. But say her she, problem was this, though. Even, even This is where it really started because she thought it was a hoodie. And we know the criminalization and demonization of the hoodie because we, we have that story with Trayvon right. Martin. Then she takes the hoodie off and says, you got good hair. So, so the, she denies and, that. Well, again, she, okay, she okay, said, but the point is, is that the, <laughs> the, the, the problem is, whether, what the problem is, all she had to do if she thought that was a hoodie, which is problematic in and of itself, was that to send that little, not embarrass her in front of her peers. She knows this. She, you know, she's an elementary school teacher. Right. Send her to the principal's office, report her, not only to the principal, but also to her to her parents, let them deal with this. But again, it suggests to me that this was a woman who felt powerless with us in the face of a of a seven year old. Hey, Marjorie, Marjorie, the, the, the true apology should have happened right after that incident happened. Mm-hmm. The the teacher should have called home and told mm-hmm. on and told on herself. Ra- yeah. Rather, rather than the seven-year-old, you know, sitting in the car, you know, saying, "Oh, you know, mom asked, you know, how was your day?" Oh, the teacher pulled my hijab off. I mean, yeah, right. yeah. And then the little girl in the back says, yeah. uh, corroborates with this. So I, I, I just feel this that we, we, we realize now, and I, th- I think it's hindsight. I think she realizes, meaning the 
meaning the the teacher, Mrs. Herman, that this could have been the whole idea in situations like that is to de-escalate. But the problem also that we're not addressing is that that school here is predominantly, you know, people of color and low income. So so that ex exacerbates the kind of treatment or mistreatment that this black child you know, certainly. You know, by the way, we have to add one, uh, uh, I was going to say fact. We don't know that it's fact because it's denied by one side, which almost everything we've all said is denied by one side. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the teacher says that the mother, after going after the teacher, the mother of the seven-year-old, came to her door months later, knocked on her door and said how much her little daughter missed Mrs. Herman in the classroom. Again, that's one person's and said, story. And said her, her daughter blows things out of proportion, and it was yeah. all a misunderstanding, you know, but, but and her can daughter I you, wanted to be back in her class. The reason I it's wanted, a very confusing well, story. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, that's what, what I was going to say. very human, though. The reason it's, it's the I wanted to include this today, even though it is a very uh, uh, confusing story, is almost for exactly the reasons you two said a minute ago. There needed to be a grown-up in the room. Yeah. And yes. it's symptomatic to me of what's wrong, and I hate when people make these kind of statements, <laughs> but I'm about to do it. What's wrong with this country? Is there no yeah. grown-ups in yeah. the room? Things get totally out of control, as you both said, in a, a heartfelt apology early on, or an adult who was, mm -hmm. a, was willing. You know, we spoke mm -hmm. earlier today to Michael Curry. Michael Curry does a lot of these things where there are public spats, where there's an attempt to reach some resolution without people literally or figuratively strangling each other. And this is one of the great examples I've ever read. Where was this? Yeah, the Washington right. Post, Marjorie? Where was this? Yes, story? it was the Washington, Washington Post. Washington Post about you look at this and you say there's such an easy resolution of people who one assumes entered this situation in good faith right. and come out of it at war, you know? But, but, but Jim, the, the, it, it's still, I, I, what I was hoping also is that there'd be some sensitivity training because obviously that, that that's needed there. I think that the fact that we're thin skinned, uh, it's going to take a long while for us to build up a kind of callus that to hear that just see that people just make, make, may have a bad day. She may have had a bad day. She may have misread it, but it's not to ignore the implicit bias of seeing a kid. She didn't think it was a hijab thinking that she's wearing a hoodie. Well, even though, by the way, in general, I would totally agree with you. I mean, and I, you know, I'd live through, uh, uh, the Martin situation, just like yeah. you did. Everybody did Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. But the flip side is we don't know. There may have been a policy in the school that you're not allowed to wear a hoodie up in a classroom. And so it that's may not. Fine. But, but that's fine, too. But but she didn't need to snatch it off the child's well, maybe, head. Maybe she did. Maybe, I, guess you know, what, so. I guess what what is weird to me is that someone that had been doing something for 30 years very successfully and dealing with Muslim kids, black kids, the whole thing, and had a history of supporting the, the, the Muslim fencer, remember, who wore the hijab. Right. Who turned on her too, by the way. And they who became friendly yeah. with each other and everything is that this becomes a, you got to fire her and Jews are horrible. You know, it's well, like yeah, well, this but, whole well, competing that, of, that, of... That's too reductionist here. That's the, the fact that she was there 30 years means nothing. I think that we got to understand that as a country... We evolve around understanding sensibilities. She has been in a school that wasn't predominantly black and didn't have the kind of diversity that is that suggests in the article that is there. So 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 the fact that you've been there 30 years to me would be I, I think you'd be more suspect, particularly if you're not changing with the time. I do think but that it sounded what, like, what, in fairness, it sounded like she was Irene. It sounded like she was someone that was very but, inclusive I, and tried I, to be. But I also feel that the fact that nobody 
she has no record and nobody has reported her doesn't does not suggest she has a squeaky clean record it may be the fact that the egregiousness of, of her behavior at this point and the sensitivity of that child finally brought something to attention that maybe this teacher needed to simply as we say i apologize i need to check myself there's an old uh, saying about backseat quarterbacking or backseat yeah. driving, which is what we're doing. None of us were there. And the reality is that, you know, from a, from a child's perspective, you know, having, yeah. you know, uh, just tried to discern from this article, um, the hurt from the young, the young yeah. seven, now eight yeah. year old, um, you know, um, you know, Muslim sister. I think that that's the tragedy. Jim, you, you hit this right on the head that we allow these narratives, uh, many of which we bring to these stories as we read them and they take, a, yeah. they take a life of their own. And then we start hitting social media. And then all of a sudden we have opinions based on information um, that has limited data points, you know, because right. everything's being refuted. And I think the bottom line is this does not send a good model for mm -hmm. second grade students, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, and the trauma think, on this kid, yeah. because the point is, is that they now no longer in the school. She will always think, was, did, was, did we have to leave this school because, because of this incident? And the question to my answer is, is no, if we had addressed it in the moment. I guess, in fairness, again, we have to repeat that the child, according to the mother who complained, loved the teacher, wishes she were back in her classroom, talks about the teacher all the time. So I guess my thing is what you said, this, this became blown up into this huge thing like where, where yeah. it's scary, I think, in general to people that they can be in, a, in doing something quite well for 30 years and then something like this happens and they have to sell their house. And she's and, sitting home and, getting death threats. And, and getting death threats yeah. uh, because mm -hmm. oh, yeah. with well, somewhere where the with facts that. where the facts are in dispute. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, that's but, what's sad. Yeah. I, Marjorie, I, I, I don't disagree with that. But just because you've been, I just want to say this, just because you've been someplace 30 years doesn't mean that you have, a, again, as I said, a squeaky clean record. What, 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 I'm, what I'm hoping for, because in any argument, we bring out particular biases because then we right. saw these sort of anti-Semitic tropes that the dad said and, and th things just got crazy. But what I'm hoping is, is that some that that out of that moment again, because the children are gone, their, their peer group is gone. I'm hoping that the school learns something and moving forward because this won't ha this might happen again. Hey, you two. I see. If we had been in charge, this would have been resolved. <laughs> Thanks for having Absolutely. Absolutely. We did arbitration today. Okay. <laughs> see you guys. Okay. Well, yeah. See you later. Thank you very much, as always. We've been talking with, excuse me, the Reverend Irene Monroe, who's a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston voice of Detour's African-American Heritage Trail. Emma G. Price III is founding pastor of the Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Austin, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Together they host GBH's All Revved Up podcast so coming up how much cash would you be willing to slap down on the airport gate counter to avoid flying with kids a new survey says even in this era of inflation people would actually pay more to fly without children on their airplane boston globe travel writer christopher Mueller joins to discuss that and more plus why montreal whips our butt as a winter city you're listening to boston public radio 89.7 gbh 
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're at the library tomorrow. Is that right? Tomorrow? Yeah, Tuesday. Yes. And uh, Police Commissioner Michael Cox will be joining us for the first time, the new commissioner of police in Boston. A new survey has found that more than 90% of Americans find travel a stressful proposition. We go through the gamut of long security lines, complicated logistics, screaming kids just to stick our toes in some sand. The guy to resolve all these problems is Boston Globe travel writer Christopher Muther, who joins us now. Hey, Christopher, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. So, Christopher, before we get to um, um, anything uh, involving airplanes and kids on planes and people's hating of flying, um, two planes clipped each other's wings on the tarmac of Boston's uh, Logan Airport this morning. Just a week after this Learjet taking off at at Logan had a close call with a JetBlue flight preparing to land. Apparently, the JetBlue flight had to abort the landing and and, and take off. In this case, this morning, it was um, two United Airlines planes. One was back. They were backing away. At least one was backing away uh, to from the gate to go out. So um, this is unusual. I mean, are we to take anything away from this at all? Or is this just sometimes these things happen or what are we to think? Well, you know, at first when these were being reported at what seemed like a rapid clip, I was thinking it's, you know, a bit of sensationalism. Once in a while something happens and then there it gets some traction, then other stories emerge. And but in this particular case, um, you're right in that there have been more incidents happening of these near collisions like we're on a faster clip this year than we normally are. So just for context, from 2018 to 2022, there were 23 incidents like t- during those five-year span that um, involved cargo and passenger planes almost colliding. So that's, you know, narrowly avoided. So, for instance, unlike Logan today, where they clipped wings, they weren't flying. There was, you know, no risk of fatalities. Um, but... You know, between the past two months, we've seen six already of these near misses. So, you know, you have a five-year span with 23, you have two months with six. And I think part of that is due to um, what we've seen across the board in aviation, which is a shortage of personnel. Yeah. Due to the pandemic, um, there's a whole bunch of other reasons that people are trying to politicize um, with FAA leadership and all of that. But I think the bottom line is it's the same reason why we saw the um, Southwest meltdown in December, the um, the FAA, you know, they had a morning where all of their equipment was down a couple of months ago. They um, And then, you know, last spring was the JetBlue meltdown. So it's just another thing of these growing pains there's been a lot of attrition of air traffic controllers um again a lot left during the pandemic it takes a while to train new people to come in um generally and i know i'll regret saying this something terrible will probably happen as a result uh but it's there hasn't been a a u.s airline involved in a collision that's caused fatalities since 2009 and the last time there was any kind of um, airline issue, it was a South Korean airline. And it was, I think it was um, 10 years ago. And they collided into a seawall in San Francisco. So, like, as you've heard a million times, aviation is pretty safe. I'm not trying to downplay these things. But yeah. in general, I think, yes, there's some stuff going on. But I also think it, things are fairly safe. 
Thank you for downplaying that. Now, can we move to the <laughs> survey that I mentioned at the beginning? Ninety, I mean, talk about a surprise to no one. Ninety percent of people find travel to be stressful. I, did you? Was it you who wrote what some of the solutions are? To, was it you? Yes, because I'm I'm a man of action, positivity, <laughs> and solutions. Exactly. Yes. It's obvious the biggest problem and the thing that is most stressful for all of us is trying to get to the front of the line to get on the plane. Then when you get on the plane, making sure there's space in your overhead because the people at the back of the plane have put stuff in your overhead so you're going to have stuff behind you. So you got to – you know what I'm saying? So give, oh, us yeah, a, exactly. give us a couple of solutions that are within the realm of possibility that would address this stress uh, uh, conundrum. Well, I feel like you know first and foremost – Yes, the carry-on issue for me is the most stressful. For people in the survey, it was actually planning a trip. Um, really? Which I get to. Yeah. Get over that. Was, that. Uh, that's oh, I get that car. completely. Really? I'm, I'm totally flummoxed okay. when it comes to planning. It's the reason why I've aged so dramatically in the past 10 years <laughs> that I had to plan so many trips. The stress is killing me. Um, but when it comes to the whole carry-on thing, I mean, I, you know, if financially you're able to do it, check a bag. That's always my advice. Therefore, yeah. you don't end up as uh, one of the dreaded gate lice, as they're called, who crowd the gate waiting to like, kind of get line. in as soon as possible. Um, and then you're not stressed out when you get in. I check a bag and then I have my backpack that I can put under the seat and it has um, like just the essentials that I need in case my bag got lo- lost for a few days. But Within the whole bag getting lost uh, realm, you can buy, Apple has these air tags that will track your bag for you. Um, There's companies that will ship your luggage for you. I never heard of this called Lugless or something. You wrote about that? Lugless. Yeah, there's there's a few of them. What do they do? Uh, So they work through like um, FedEx and UPS, but they kind of will arrange it in a way where it's set up for travelers. So they're more of like a middleman in all of it. How much and more expensive is that than checking a bag on an airline? It depends on how long you're willing to be without your luggage. For instance, if you ship it like a week out before your trip, um, it's probably like double what it would cost to check your bag. However, you know, when you get to your hotel, your luggage is there. You don't have to bring it to the airport you know, you can set it up like a FedEx uh, or UPS package where they'll come and pick it up on your front step. That's pretty um, great. But wait, yeah, wasn't so- it you who had a more creative solution? I think it was you who said the airlines, since money determines behavior, re- do a 180, charge for a carry-on and don't charge for a check bag. And then you'd eliminate that. Pro- it was you, right? Yeah. I mean, a few years ago, I wrote a story that said airlines should – Eliminate fees for check bags, charge for carry-ons, or get rid of carry-on spaces altogether in planes because that would just take away so much. I think for me, it would take away about 80% of the stress of just watching people do this. And it's not just getting on the plane. It's getting off the plane, right? With people in the aisle that can't get their bag. It falls in somebody's head. It's always a fiasco. It's a the whole kind of crazy cattle thing where as soon as the plane lands, people stand up as if yep. they're going to save dramatic time. And, you know, thank God for my husband. He, if people try to, from the row behind us, try to get in front of us, he calls them out on it. 
Love that. It's good for him. No, but the yeah. worst part is the thing I said before, is the people in the back of the plane board first, and instead of putting their carry-on over their heads, they put it in the middle of the plane over your head, so by the time you get there, you have to put your bag in an overhead behind Jim. where you're sitting, which means war is about to ensue. Check your bag, oh. Jim. Check okay, your bag. Just, just the other day, I saw it almost happen. A war almost ensued, yes. Now, Christopher, can we discuss a couple of places you've been lately? Because one of them... you've been, too. Montreal. I know. I I go to Montreal Montreal quite a bit, actually. It was there at Christmas. (laughs) You wrote... I don't know how to pronounce those words, even though I sort of speak French, or did anyway. What is the the term that that is used to describe what you're writing about vis-a-vis Montreal? I mean, to anglicize it, it's nordicity. What does that mean? Nordicity is just kind of embracing the winter. Not just putting up with it but like throwing your arms around it and loving it and just like all of what's unique about it and crazy about it and not sort of cowering or playing the role of chicken little when it starts snowing okay so here's a question for you a theoretical question i know you don't like hypotheticals let's assume you're a travel writer like you for example (laughs) and somebody who you know fairly well like me for example explains to you what the single greatest thing to do in the winter in Montreal is, and the travel writer chooses not to include that in his piece about Nordicity. How would you feel? Well, I mean, what I would say to you, Jim, is I write for a family paper, so strip clubs cannot go in the story. I'm just going to lay that down now. <laughs> We've well, had this conversation. Now, let me tell you what... Many what, times. What Christopher chose to ignore from this is there is a hotel, which is where I always stay, called the Bonaventure, where there is a heated pool, and you swim in the dead of winter, particularly on a blizzardy kind of day, you swim outside. Is that Nordicity or is that Nordicity, Christopher Muther? I don't think that's Nordicity because you're in a heated pool. Nordicity is like like really um, bundling up and going outside and staying outside and then, you know, exploring and not sort of like hiding away in a swimming pool um, (laughs) and looking at the pretty snowflakes. I'm more of like a man of action. (laughs) Like what? What what speaks Nordicity (laughs) to you in terms of Montreal? What did you say in that piece? Well, I mean, for me, it's like, so I happened to be there the one weekend of the entire winter where it actually felt like winter. Uh It was like 20 below, yet I went um, ice skating and I went, um, I went, uh, what else did I do? Like spent all this time outside enjoying public art. Um, I went to like a dance party that was outside, something called Igloo Fest. Uh Uh-huh. You know, it's like all about just being out, embracing and having fun. But they've also set it up really smartly where they have urban planners who look at how long people can stand being out in the cold. And then they set up warming stations or areas where people can go and just hang out, which is free and there's public bathrooms. That's another big part of it. I mean, it's a total aside, but... You know, or in Boston, a lot of the public bathrooms are closed in winter. Yes. It's like, you're not going to encourage people to be outside if they can't, you know, go somewhere to go to the bathroom. Explain so the just, warming stations. What are those? So um, there's one area where they refer to it as a chateau, and it overlooks this really cool ice rink where they've created, like, animations based on the people skating. But anyway, you can go in. It's free. You don't have to buy anything. You can sit by the fire could bring a book um, or there's areas where um, there's just fire pits set up yeah. near public art. 
just places where, you know, you're out and you can chill and do things. I guess chill is the wrong word. Warm up into things. You know, I just realized another thing you left out of your story beyond the heated pool, which was inexcusable with the Bonaventure, <laughs> is there's usually a line, and there was for me at Christmas time. Christmas Eve, I'm a line of maybe 75 people at Schwartz's Delicatessen, which I would argue is the finest delicatessen on the planet, not just in Montreal. People braving the cold weather because they know they'll be able to have a hot smoked meat, they call it. They don't call it corned beef. Smoked meat sandwich. Why was that not in the story? So, so if you read through the story... I did. I read it very quickly, but I read it. There's a movement right now in Montreal and the rest of Quebec to get locally sourced um, things in a way that sort of mimics Nordic countries. Yeah. Um, and so they're trying to move away from poutine and smoked meat sandwiches uh-huh. and kale de castor and like things that you're a little testy, people... aren't you? Don't you think? <laughs> Me testy. <laughs> <laughs> the word is defensive. Thank you. Defensive. That's right. That's right. But by the way, I'm not a call. Let me just say, in a moment of seriousness, your column, mm-hmm. your piece was great. Montreal, for people like me who don't like cold weather, you think it's the last place I'd go at Christmas. Montreal at Christmas time is magical. It is spectacular. The restaurants, all the outdoor stuff that Christopher talks about, is there. They really, they really nailed it. And so, so do you? Do you drive or fly? Me um, or Christopher? Time... Oh, oh, Christopher, sorry. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, this time of year, I would fly just because driving, you know, you never know what you're going to encounter through the hills. Right. of Vermont. Okay. Okay. So go to, let's go to the other end of the country. You talk about the multiple personalities. That's the headline of the Florida Keys, but you clearly are a big fan of Key West. Yes. <laughs> yes. So tell us, there's many keys, but why Key West? I mean, Key West for me has always been like the one place where one, it's always warm, you know, for instance, in Orlando, it might snow, but Key West, it's always going to be the same temperature. Um, But I also just love the attitude of Key West. I mean, it's kind of sloppy. It's (laughs) kind of fun. People, um, you know, it's, it's different from Provincetown. People like to think of Key West as a gay destination, but it's really not. I feel like it's more half and half or more straight than gay, but no one really cares when you're there. And the nice thing about it also is you can make it as trashy as you want, or you can go to like fine dining restaurants yeah. uh, and enjoy that. You can, you know, it's not a beach town, but you could just go to a resort and park yourself and not have to deal with people singing Jimmy Buffett songs um, <laughs> on Duval street. So there's just like lots of, I like the options that are there. And I, Primarily like the um, Ernest Hemingway house where you can support yes. with 60 polydactyl cats if you <laughs> so choose. What does polydactyl mean? I read that in your piece. I don't know what it went. It means they have extra toes. Oh, oh. Hey, and these but- are all these are all direct descendants of the cats that Ernest Hemingway had. Is that true or is that like one of those? That's no, true? that's the hand of God. That's, that's true. Pretty- yeah. Hey, you know, how, how much danger are the keys in of being underwater soon? That's a very good question. Um, I'd say probably the same as the rest of us. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, it's a, a coral-based string. Um, if you've ever, you know, if you've gone through like the Seven Mile Bridge, which lifts you up and then back, and you're basically yep. at sea level. Yeah. So I feel like it's probably... You know, I think it's just as much of a risk as it is for the rest of Florida, if not more. You know, I haven't been to Key West in decades, but my number isn't it the farthest? It's the f- longest to get to, 
right? Southernmost point of the United States. It is? It's like the very tip, and it's like very close to Cuba. So what's your top recommendation for people who want to save a little bit of time on the drive? You want to save time on the drive? Well, you don't want to go the whole way. Uh, you know, a, a, another key that you were trumpeting in your piece, Christopher Muther. Oh, I mean, I really like um, um, Isla Medora. I think there's a lot there um, in terms of, you know, just activities. It, you know, it's different. The keys kind of change from kid-friendly and adult and all of that. So, you know, mid-keys tends to be a little more, upper keys is more um, sporty, Mid is gets more family and then lower when you get to Key West is kind of every man and woman for themselves. How often do you go, by the way? Um, I have been, let's see, I would say like maybe every other year. Really? Not as often as Montreal. Okay. Speaking of kids, we really have you here for this. Tell us there's some sort of survey that has been done about an issue that I've been championing for years unsuccessfully, but I think we're about to push it over the, the top. We talked on this radio show a couple of weeks ago about restaurants that do not allow children after a certain hour. And mm. there was a poll, and I believe you're actually looking for people to reach out to you. We'll give your uh, email address in a couple of seconds uh, about providing access to adults only uh, uh, airlines. Give us the backstory here. What's the survey say? Well, I mean, this particular survey. For me, it was surprising that people would be this brutally honest, and I kind of love it, <laughs> which is that like, it was about 80% or so of adults were willing to pay more <laughs> to go on a flight where there's no children, and you know, 90% are advocating for like more uh, or airlines to start flights without children, and they also like, don't care about the environmental impacts of this. You know, if it means more flights, they just don't want to hear kids on planes. They don't want their seat kicked by toddlers. They don't want to hear babies screaming for, you know, three hours or more on a flight. So for me, like the survey was kind of, I mean, I tend to be a bit of a um, cynical person, just a tiny bit. Tiny. Um, But I am sympathetic. I try to be sympathetic toward babies who are crying because they don't know what's going on around them. Their ears are popping. There's loud noise. How about a nine-year-old brat? Are you sympathetic to them too? No, I'm serious. Um, No, I'm not. I'm not. Although I'm usually more upset with the parents for letting the child be a brat. That's a valid point. Here's Um, what I always wonder. You know, there used to be when people smoked, smoking sections, they were kind of ridiculous because the smoke went back. I, I've thought that why not family sections, kids yeah. sections? That seems like a easier solution. I mean, you're, at least you're right, not right next to the screaming kid, you know? Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, there's so many ideas and, you know, just going back, you know, the latest round of this debate was um, driven by someone on TikTok who posted a video and there was a kid screaming beside her for hours and she was Aww. complaining. And then there was, you know, just an avalanche. But if you go back, you know, like strings on Reddit and everywhere, this debate has been out there. And, you know, for me, like looking through, I think Japan Airways had like a a child only section at one point. I don't know if they still have it. And Jim, you'll remember this, that Hooters had an airline back in the early 2000s, um, which was adults only. Oh, <laughs> I don't understand. And that didn't last very I long. I don't understand the climate impact. Why would the, it would seem to me if you couldn't fly kids on one 
uh, uh, let's say, airline or set of flights, that would reduce the number of flights. The reduced, the reduced number would be made up by flights that do include kids. So don't you end up with a zero at the end of the day? No? I think it's more that, you know, if you had a flight without kids, then families are not going to be going on that flight. Right. So then right. you would have empty seats, essentially. And, you know, airlines make money from having as many seats filled as possible. But also then you'd have to be flying more planes that would, you know, where families would, I don't want to say be accepted, but where you'd have families and then maybe you'd charge a discount for passengers who are willing to put up with crying babies. It's a real conundrum, I feel like. Yeah, but it seems the like flights- there should be... Should be an easy way to around. There is. They should just heat the cargo hold and put the kids in there. (laughs) By the way, anybody who wants Christopher Muther is writing a piece about this apparently, and anybody who wants to weigh in, and I'm going to email too. By the way, is Christopher dot Muther M U T H E R at Globe dot com. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Um, Christopher Muther. Oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to tell you, Jim, that you don't need to bother emailing. That's okay. (laughs) I'll do it anyway. That's it's not a trouble. Right. Thank Hooters you. Hooters is not bringing back okay, their fine. Yeah. Don't okay. take any guff, Christopher Muir. By the way, you were not you. making our, – our staff just put up a photograph. There really was a Hooters airline? There really was a Hooters airline. Yes, I'm not making this up. You oh missed it, Jim. Well, you I missed it. Miss it. Your opportunity's passed. Christopher, nice to see you as always. Appreciate you time. Thank you very much, Christopher Muir. We've been speaking with Boston Globe travel writer Christopher Muir. Thank you very much for coming on and putting up with this, Christopher. We do appreciate it. it. Coming up – it's your turn. We're going to ask you guys about this. What do you think? Uh, first kid-free dining, now kid-free planes. Is this an outrage, or would this make your day? And would you pay more for it? And why are you so hostile toward the poor little baby sitting next to you on the airplane that really can't help it? 877-301-8970 is the number to call or text. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We are at the library tomorrow. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox, relatively new on the job, will be joining us there for the first time. You know, air travel is a modern marvel. It's stunning speeds. You can reach warmer climes like the Keys, interact with new cultures. But it's hard to get excited about it when there's a little twerp in the seat behind you, <laughs> kicking the back of your chair for nine straight Hours. I know this. You know this. We all know this. Traveling with kids, especially if they're your kids, by the way, is a nightmare. So name your price. How much would you throw down to snag an exclusive adults-only plane ride? We just talked about this a minute ago with Christopher Muther, and we talked to you guys about it a month or so ago, about restaurants banning kids. How do you feel about making airlines next? We want to hear your stories about children on planes. And by the way, you may love having kids on planes. You like the family atmosphere, the screaming, the kicking of the seats, whatever it is, we invite you to call 877-301-897. Where are you on this? I don't even know what your position is. Where are you on this? Well, I think you should get yourself some uh, noise uh, headphones, noise-canceling headphones, and it would make it much easier for you to fly with the Bose or whatever kind of headphones you get. But obviously, it's, it's tough. But I haven't flown with small children. You're used to some people used to. You know what they used to do, Jim? No. 
give their kids like an extra dose of Benadryl, kind of knock the kid out. They did? Yes. But you feel really bad for babies because they can't pop their ears. Oh, that's right. right. So they're trying to nurse the baby or they're trying to feed the baby with a bottle, oh. trying to get the kid's ears to pop. The kid's own ears pop. It hurts. The poor little kid um, starts crying. That's why some people resort, resort to some terrible thing uh, like the Benadryl. But when they're older kids, when they're like over six or over seven, then you're really hostile toward the parents, right? Because you know the parents should be well uh, taking care taking care of the kid, and they don't. I'm only going to spend 15 seconds on this because Marjorie doesn't like when I tell stories I've told 400 times in the past. <laughs> I'm flying back from London a few years ago, uh-huh. and a kid who was like four feet tall uh, was in full recline in his seat in front of me, and I am six feet five, so I had no room, and Bose headphones wouldn't solve the problem. I asked the little kid in front of me to pull up his seat so that I would have room, I got no response. I asked the flight attendant to have him pull up his seat, and I was told that he had a right to full recline. I asked that parent you mentioned a minute ago, Marjorie, about recline, and you know what they said threatened to do? Punch Arrest me out. Arrest you. I'll and when it turned out. out we got into a fight, <laughs> the end of the story, and I'll stop here, is the flight attendant, I was on a 747, made me stand up from my seat, stand at the bar in the 747 for the last three hours of the flight, and said if I got into any further to-do with a little nine-year-old or wherever he was and his parents, that they would have air marshals greet me at Logan. What the hell are you doing over there, I'm, I'm putting some paper in the printer because oh, it's good. making a lot of noise. Great. Thank you but very you know much. Something? You know something? I don't, I don't blame them, Jim. I think, I think that the air marshals might have been the appropriate response in to your situation. In all seriousness, I am 6'5". There's no room. This kid could barely have his feet touch the ground from his seat. And yet he was in that position because he knew it was driving me crazy. So the answer is I am so totally for adults only kind of thing. And I'd be willing to pay a premium for it. The question is, would you? 877-301-8970. Well, the study says that 8 in 10 travelers, as we said, want adult-only exactly. flights. 64% willing to pay an average premium of 10 to 30% more I'd pay 10% for those more. flights. Um, women and men are just about the same. Women are as upset about these kids on the, on the airplanes as, as babies are. And we, as men are. As men are, that's right. Thank you. The babies haven't voiced they have, an opinion. They don't have an opinion yet, by <laughs> the, the way. survey. Thank you. And the passengers uh, usually passengers. blame parents uh, yeah. for not being It is able a, to... a problem, but when the parent threatens to punch you out, it really doesn't help you out that much when you have a, a conundrum with a little kid, correct? And again, I don't, I don't understand why we don't do what we used to do when people smoked on airplanes. Is segregate, no, that would be a good start. Segregate the kids or the families from the uh, people who or are Or lock adults. them in the bathrooms, one of the Or two. lock them in the bathrooms or put them in the baggage hold with the dogs and the, and the uh, suitcases. 877-301-8970. By the way, this is not saying that kids can't fly. They can fly on family flights. There'd be family flights where parents with kids can fly with other parents with kids and if some of us choose to fly, fly, uh, fly kid free we can pay a premium and do that let's start with Paul in Somerville you're first where are you on this I uh, I, I don't blame kids uh, that are under six or seven or babies yeah. for being uh, fidgety and out of hand and everything I blame the parents I've had uh, kids kick in my seat and mother asked them or told them three or four times, stop it, this and that. Kid kept it up. I finally just get up on my knees and turn around and look at the mom. She nodded her head, and I explained to the kid that he could fit out that little window if he kept it <laughs> in my seat. Beautiful. Beautiful, Paul. That is exactly... Get out that little window. That is a beautiful sentiment. Paul, thank you for sharing that it's story. It's a long way By down. By the way, he agrees with you. The parents are the problem. But how does that solve anything? By agreeing that the parents, not the kid, uh, is the problem... 
they're still creating havoc on your plane. So let them fly on a different flight. That's all there is to it. I think it's a reasonable solution, suggestion. Heather and Rentham, what's up? Hi, I Hi. am a first-time caller. Oh, thank you. I have, a, yes, I have a five children, and we fly quite frequently. Okay. And I have big conversations with my kids about, you know, how to act on a plane, don't kick the seat in front of you. So I think a lot of it is the parents, um, but it's, it's inevitable. You fly, there's going to be kids on the flight. So if you want to pay extra to go fly on your own flight, then that's but would you be upset as the mother of five, Heather, if you were told yeah. you could only fly on a family flight? Uh, as long as the, as, long, as long as the price was the same and yeah. there were flights available, then I wouldn't care. No. Now, Excellent. Heather, now, did, you, did you ever load the kids up with Benadryl? I, I do not. No, I don't, I don't believe in that. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Heather, let's get personal here about me, not you. What okay. if your kid was, I, I think this kid was like four feet two, and he was entitled to a full recline, which apparently is are the rules of the airlines, but it was bothering physically a six foot five inch man behind. Would you take matters in your own hands? What would you do? So my husband's actually six four, and Perfect. so my kids know not to, not to recline. I say on a flight, we don't need to. We'll We'll relax when we get to Disney. You don't the, need to recline right The now. perfect family. Heather, thank you for the call, and thanks for being a wonderful mother. That's exactly the right attitude. James in, 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 in a car in Boston wants to know how much he'd have to pay to have his children fly with somebody else. <laughs> well, how humiliating plane. is it when your kids are out it's of control horrible. and you it's can't horrible. control them? It's horrible. Uh, another text says, I'm a terribly nervous flyer. Rambunctious kids give me sensory overload. I always save up for a first-class ticket. I've never encountered a child in first class, and they give you booze. That is true. I don't know. That's are really kids, expensive. Are babies flights. allowed in first class? I assume they are. I, I don't remember seeing I mean, a boy, kid either. Imagine if you did decide, or you were a frequent flyer. Maybe you get moved at first class, or maybe you really splurge and get a first class ticket, and you had a screaming kid next to you. First class is really expensive. You know, it's yeah. really expensive. Well, some people are really time. rich. Jim. I understand that. I, I and just, imagine if you did save up, or you were really rich, and you had a little. A little brasky next to you. That would be a difficult thing to reconcile. Listen to this, but this is an interesting uh, variation on this theme. In that same poll, 60% of flyers would rather be seated with a crying, wailing, or otherwise misbehaving child than a rude, this is the key expression, hygienically challenged, loud talking, or in any other way, uh, annoying adult. I would yeah. agree with that, by the way. Yeah, well, that's true, that. because you're kind of stuck. With it. Well, you're stuck with them both, I guess. What if they but- did this? Well, they have one plane for adults. One plane for kids and one plane for hygienically challenged adults as the well, third know, option. I think that that, because especially in the summertime and sometimes they press against you. When they you're touch seat. your skin against yeah. your skin if you're and wearing shorts. Shorts on. Oh, That's my God. That's horrible. You know what they need? Like on trains, they have the quiet car on the yeah, train. It's a wonderful thing. It's too bad they can't have the quiet, hermetically sealed section of the airplane. Well, that's what you're, you're thinking, quiet. I have to say, is very creative, by the way. Separate. Stick them in the back of the, Separate How everybody. many years ago was that smoking thing in? Like 25? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know but I remember once flying to um, someplace for a long way, and I didn't even smoke then, but I thought I knew that there was going to be nobody in the smoking section so I could sleep. And great. you did it? Yes. Okay, someone s- says here, I have a two-year-old. I have ha- had me with a few times having a family-only section. It would be the equivalent of the back of the train or the, movie s- or the movie show. I would rather have the noise be distributed around the plane to help out the already stressed parents. Well, I don't give a damn about the parents. I mean, if that's, <laughs> a, I mean, that, that's my response to that. You know, they should they should be segregated. If if you're not going to have a separate flight, Marjorie's idea about putting it at the back of the plane makes a lot of sense to me. Let's go to Jessica and Weymouth. Thank you for hey, calling. Hey, Jessica. 
Hi. Hi. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting because I have I've both I've flown as a child and as an adult. I have children myself, and I will say, in all my years of flying, the worst behavior I ever encounter is from other adults. That's probably true. That's so actually probably true. Definitely, I think that children need to be in maybe not every single space. They don't need to be in at the bar with you, but children need to be in the same spaces that other adults are permitted to because that's how you learn how to behave in those spaces. And the more that you have people, whether it's your parent or the guy next to you saying, hey, can you do this? You know, you learn how to behave in that space and it makes you a better member of society in the long run. The more we separate it out and say these people aren't worthy of being in society with the rest of us, the more you're going to have entitled people. Well, actually, that's a fairly thoughtful comment, Jessica. That's a, I don't have a good answer to that one. Thank you for your call. Some that's hostility, really Jim, towards you on the texting this line. Is Bob in Plymouth you're going to read? Uh, well, before that, I was going to read no. Paul from Worcester, who what he says, say? and now we bring you yet another episode of the Jim Browdy Grievance Tour. <laughs> Here's Jane from Fairhaven. What's the difference between a crying baby and a crabby Jim Browdy? Exactly. Except for... Four and a half feet. Seriously, are you anti-kids? Apparently, Tom Papa, we've had him on the show. He's very funny. He's Papa. He has a, Papa, he has a thing on uh, uh, Baby on Airplanes on TikTok, so people can check that out. So Bob in Plymouth says, would people pay extra to not sit next to Jim? I think they would. <laughs> Separate flight. And Chris from you there just called in to our producers and said babies are allowed in first uh, class. Yeah, that is something that you, they think they should rethink. Yeah. Eight, seven, you ever seven, ridden in first class, by the way? Ever no. flown first? Oh Have my you? God. I've only been bumped up, you know, because they're, you know, they're overbooked. Or if you're on a frequent flyer program, they occasionally do it. It is a whole other thing. It's almost like not even flying. Well, it, it, it's, it, we had this discussion once before that they would be better off on the airplanes not having you walk through first class. Because you're seeing these people drinking yes. champagne. They're already and... there. You've been fighting in <laughs> exactly this cattle car right. for like 45 That's minutes. Right. They're already sitting down. The seats are wide. They're relaxed. They're having a cocktail. And then you go back Cloth to Cloth napkins. The, right. Then you go back to the cattle car. They should have the pr- it in ha- plane open so that People go left to first class and go right to the back of the plane. Well, the huge planes, by the way, do. The huge, like, international planes. You enter beyond, behind the first class characters. Rebecca in Boston, hey. Hello. Hi. Glad, uh, glad to get on. We're glad to have you. <laughs> frequent frequent trier. Um, frequent trier. That's good, yeah, actually. Go ahead. Yeah, yes. Um, I think that a little education for the mothers of babies, and perhaps even young children would go a long way. You know, the, the airlines send out before you fly, you know, tips. Mm-hmm. You know, here's what you're going to uh, encounter. I don't think a lot of young mothers particularly know that if you give babies something to suck on, their ears will not pop and, and hurt, hurt them. Mm-hmm. Um, and even a lollipop, if, if they're old enough to suck on a lollipop. Um, and it's, I see a lot of uh, babies crying, and the mothers are just, you know, they don't have a pacifier, they don't have a bottle, they don't have anything. I've even seen a woman breastfeeding on the plane, and that works perfectly. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. And then if the kids are older... You know, the tip for flying is, um, you know, bring something that they like, uh, iPod, uh, favorite toy, um, 
you know, make it an adventure where they're doing a journal or something. Rebecca, so Rebecca. It's very Nancy, thoughtful, yeah, actually. Yeah. Who sends out these tips? I've never gotten tips. She's saying here. the airlines oh. should, she's saying. Oh, they should. Yeah, I but, so but, they but did. No, you're, you're right. You're right, Marjorie. No, I've gotten, um, in fact, um, we just uh, flew on JetBlue last month, and they sent out, you know, here's what to expect. I, yeah. I didn't really? Know that. I've never gotten that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, but I, let me just tell you something, Rebecca. My attitude is, even though kid, babies can be just as annoying as a nine-year-old, I, I am totally willing to give babies a break because the reality is they're babies. It's the it's the single-digit kids once they're like five or older than that that I just don't want to be on a plane with. Is that an unreasonable position position to take? It depends on on the kid. Yeah. Um, I've, I I used to fly a lot on business, and yeah. I've had the kid back of me kicking me, and. I, I, Love I, I glare at the I glare at the parent. I I, I turn around and on you know my what you knees. just said that was so key. I, I hadn't thought of this. You said it depends on the kid. If I was able to interview each of the children before they got on the flight <laughs> and decide which ones could get on the flight and which ones could not, that I would find to be acceptable. Rebecca, thanks well, for your call. And, we really. Oh, sorry. And, Quickly. And the baby, the babies, I give, I will give them a break, but only if the a mother is trying everything. I'm with you. That's beautifully put. Thank you, Rebecca. So one of the texters wants to know if either of us have ever been on a plane stuck there with a whole middle school class. I have actually, I've been on uh, planes with kids going to Europe or something like a high school class or well, at least a high school like class. That. They're better by high school. Okay, here's get on a plane for an 18-hour flight, 747 upper deck. You can imagine the looks of other passengers when we get on with three young kids. But according to the text, the kids were great. However, two gentlemen got so drunk, the stewardess let one of them stay passed out on the floor. That's nice. I mean, there is a lot of bad behavior by adults, as many of the texters have pointed, have pointed out. So what do you do about that? Well, you flight attendants you're have horrible have the, jobs. Have the federal marshals greet them at the uh, at the gate. By the way, it wasn't land. exaggerating. I was told, even though I did nothing wrong, oh, I was told that the mar- I did nothing they wrong. They always call out the federal marshals when people do nothing wrong. I mean, they just, <laughs> you snatched out of your seat. You're just sitting there minding your own business. Suddenly, they could buy and say, "Sir, the federal marshal's going to meet you at the gate." I think it happens all the time, Jim. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. That is that is a good point. Yeah. Want to take another um, call quickly? Katie from Medfield. Thank you for calling. Hi, Katie. Got a minute? Take it. Yeah, happy to be on. I'm enjoying Thanks. this segment. I'm driving home from Boston. Um, yeah, I my take on this, I have two children, four and six, and we've flown with them quite a bit. You know, I think this country, and I don't want to stereotype everybody, but, like, I think we're so quick to judge and so slow to help. We flew to Iceland recently on Iceland. Wow. They go beyond, above and beyond. They let children on first. They have a special bag with special food for kids. Wow. Children go first through customs, and they, they help rather than make your life more difficult and hinder and i i just feel listening to this you know oh we should have separate planes for kids like no kids are part of society people should recognize they're going to behave the way they do sometimes parents sometimes do everything they can and i just think people should be more helpful rather than judge so katie you're i just want to be clear great. you don't agree with the texters who think the kids should be stuffed in the overhead bins <laughs> for the duration of the flight you, you would disagree with that yeah, i take it exactly. <laughs> okay no, that was okay. a that was a mature call, actually. Thank that you. was a grown up call. Thank you, Katie, for those thoughts.
Thank you very much. We are done. Uh, thank you very much for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, we are going to be at the Boston Public Library. We're very excited. We're going to have our first interview with the new commissioner of the Boston Public, uh, the Boston Police Department, uh, Michael Cox. We're Can I say, by, by the way, he's not going to take live questions because he has limited time. If people right. do have questions for the commissioner, uh, tweet them to us at BOS Public Radio, and we'll probably include some of them. Okay. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox, as well as NBC Sports Boston's Trenny Casey, the ACLU of Massachusetts' Carol Rose, and Grammy Award-winning violinists Mark and Maggie O'Connor. They're great. We're so excited about that. Kind of a, we usually have live music Fridays. This is going to be a special live music Tuesday. CNN's John King will be with us as well. I just want to mention people are, are often texting and asking. You can just show up at the Boston Public Library. You don't need a reservation. It's free. There's plenty of places to sit down. You can stay for as little or as long as you like. We want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Hannah Loss, and Cole Garcia. We're very happy to have John the Claw, engineer. Welcome back, John. The Claw John. Parker back with us on the boards. Thank you so much, John. Hope everything is great, and we're so glad to have him. As I said, our executive producer is Jamie Bologna. Anything you'd like to add here, Jim? Uh, not really. Just keep the kids off my plane. That's about <laughs> all I want to add. And by okay. I, I, I just, it would never the twain should meet, and everybody be happier, and that should be the result. That's it. Okay. Okay, I you. I am Marjorie Egan. I am Jim Browdy. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you can tune in tomorrow. If you're in the neighborhood, stop by at the Boston Public Library. It should be a great show. Uh, meanwhile, have a great afternoon. See ya.